Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. This show has been a long time coming. Uh, tonight, V Radio is honored to have Ben Stewart, filmmaker of Esoteric Agenda and Chimatica, and founder of the Hanged Man Project. Um, ben, introduce yourself to my listeners. Uh, well, <laughs> as you mentioned, yeah, uh, I'm Ben Stewart. I uh, made uh, two films so far, and um, just recently, within the past uh, year or so, um, I've been pretty much just traveling the world over, uh, giving presentations as much as I can. Uh, my band also travels quite a bit in uh, support of the Hanged Man Project, which I just uh, released on July 4th. So, um, and we can, we can get into that a little bit later, like what the Hanged Man Project is actually about. But, um, yeah, it's great to be here. I'm really, uh, really honored to be on the show. Well, um, as I told you before we came on, the first question I always ask a guest is, what got you outside the box? What got you thinking, you know, from the perspective of an activist or somebody who actually cares about things outside the matrix, so to speak? Um, well, um, there's quite a few things, obviously, that, that have to do with what got me to this point that I'm at right now. Um, it's all inclusive, but I could say, because um, uh, I've been asked this question quite a bit on other radio interviews, and I always try to give like, a different angle of the story instead of the same regurgitated line over and over again. Um, but what I could say is that uh, one of the things that really drew me into this path is music, and I've, I've stated that before in many of my other interviews. I've been into uh, really strongly into music uh, for as long as I can remember, and um, since I, I lived on a few remote island locations around the world, I was immediately drawn into tribal and rhythm-based percussive music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this um, this was also what drew me into a unique fascination with tribal rituals and beliefs. And uh, I could say that I've had a closer connection with indigenous lifestyles and their rituals, myths, symbolism, and appreciation for the planet as an intelligent life form than any other spiritual group. Uh, for, for example, um, another thing that really uh, helped, you know, throw me down this path that I've been on for quite a few years is uh, there was a tribe in the Amazon jungle of um, uh, Peru, right around the Quito's Peru, that I stayed with uh, for a few weeks. And um, I just realized, uh, first and foremost, their, their comprehension of ethnobotany was leaps and bounds more superior than any scientific understanding in the Western world that I found. And um, our understanding uh, here, at least you know, in the U.S., uh, with, with science here, is limited to the elemental compounds of plants and their chemical reactions with humans, which is really just purely physical. The shaman that I lived with um, for those few weeks uh, down in Peru explained that he was able to explain fluently um, why specific plants with specific colors that grow in specific mediums at specific times of the year, he explained why the earth allows them to grow at that time. He had uh, a full understanding of the basic behavior of the elements, so he had uh, a lot of scientific understanding as well. He had an understanding of... Uh, um, a lot of the, the elements and the constituents of the plants, their electromagnetic signature. He could speak fluently about their ancestry, why they've evolved alongside other species in order to maintain uh, a true balance of nature. And uh, long story short, 
these indigenous cultures really opened my eyes to a meaning of nature that I'd never really considered before. Prior to that, um, I was really only concerned with the parts of my environment that could benefit or harm me. So basically, it, it was all about my ego and my desires. Um, I never thought to really look at the earth as an organism that evolves because it's intelligent. I never before thought of these things as being intelligent, specifically the earth being intelligent. Um, I never thought to question my own intelligence by asking questions like, what makes life grow? You know, it's some, uh, a question like that that sounds so simple, and that was what this shaman asked me uh, one day was, because um, he, he could tell that, you know, I'm, I'm wrapped in my intellect a lot, and, you know, not just because of being, you know, a Western thinker, but um, just uh, a lot of the ways that I was raised. Um, very intellectual and uh, learning how to be a bit more abstract, he, uh, he asked me that question. He was like, do you know the force that makes that allows for life to grow on this planet? And, you know, I, I, I was a, my entire life I've been a smart-ass, punk-rock, addicted, know-it-all kid that uh, had a highly intellectual answer for everything. Like, I had an answer for absolutely everything, and I couldn't for the life of me answer that question um, because I gave it a really true, honest uh, thought. What is the force that allows for life to be present on this planet at all. Um, because science to this day hasn't explained it. That's not saying that they, they can't, but so far, our, our current understanding, science hasn't been able to explain it. Religion is, is too uh, vague and allegorical for um, many of the intellectual minds to even really make any connections with it. Uh, philosophy and art are too vague to, uh, as well to give us any real solace with this type of question. And um, those, I found, are the four pillars uh, that you'll find in every culture throughout history. Science, religion, philosophy, and art are those four pillars that doesn't matter how far back you go, how far across the world you go, those four pillars are found in absolutely every culture throughout history. So at, at this point, I really had to question whether the failure to answer this question rested with science, religion, philosophies, and art or if the failure was mine. And um, this is now why my work is, is all-inclusive. Uh, all I, I include science. I include religion. I include philosophy. I include art. Not in the sense that it's understood with my uh, previous understanding of science, religion, philosophy, and art, but understanding that science, religion, philosophy, and art, they exist within, um, within the individual. And I don't mean like uh, just within the physical body of the individual, but within our lives. They exist within us, and it's something that we experience. It's not something that you read in a book. It's not something like, – if, uh, if, if you were to basically throw all the scientists and all the scientific texts at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, does that mean that science would not exist after that? And I don't believe so. You know, I don't believe that – these philosophical, these ancient philosophical questions that have plagued humanity for thousands upon thousands of years, they would still exist regardless of the books and, uh, and, and, the, and the cultural memes and mores that we have today. So um, I found that really that, that's why my work is now all-inclusive and it always comes back to consciousness because that's, that's the, uh, really the force that I found that drives all of life. That's the intelligence uh, within all of life that allows for life to grow. And that's even right there, that's a very rudimentary, um, half-assed answer to that question. I don't even believe I've really got it, uh, got it right. 
but that's the closest that I've been able to come is by understanding that um, everything that I've come into contact with, whether it's within me or in, uh, in my environment, is some form of intelligence. And so just that form of looking at the world in a different way has really been the, the staple of uh, the two documentaries, the radio interviews, the presentations, and everything else I've done with all my work. So basically, your experiences with these, um, I guess, with these primitive tribes and their, and their shamanic ways and the wisdom that they had is kind of what got you thinking beyond just being a punk rocking kid, as you were describing yourself earlier. Well, in a, in a sense, really, what it was um, was it, it's kind of what I found out to be my education with these groups, uh, with these tribes, these cultures. Um, really comes, I mean, if uh, you understand the, the word education is actually uh, um, from the Greek word educo, to educe or to draw out of, um, I always found that really fascinating because um, for a student to be educated by drawing something out of the student is completely, completely antithetical to what we see today. You know, today it's about cramming information into a child, dates, facts, figures, numbers, um, uh, formulas, things like that. It's about giving and conditioning a child to, and that's our opinion of um, education right now, but the, the word actually comes from the, to reduce or to draw out of the student. So in a sense, uh, I found that a lot of the, uh, the random intellectual crap that I kind of built up throughout my life was really just, in a, in a lot of ways, that was just a fancy way for me to try and explain away everything in my life without actually taking an honest, open approach and saying, what, you know, wait a minute, I might be wrong uh, with my understanding. Because I had noticed that, you know, um, I hadn't changed from very early age all the way up until um, uh, late teens. I hadn't really changed within. Uh, you know, my, my image changed, everything about my life, the environment changed in many ways, but it was still these, these core um, primal impulses within me were exactly the same until I started truly questioning myself. Now, that, that's a lot different than questioning the environment and questioning authority and questioning other things. I realized that questioning my own uh, ability to be able to perceive the world is what really started getting me to transform my own life, and that's really what kind of brought me into the work that I, that I um, have gotten into today. And to kind of get back to uh, the, the question that you just asked, these um, tribes, that I've been staying, or that I stayed with, and that I studied under, and I, I went through their ceremonies. What they actually showed me was that if you clear away all, all kind of the, um, the the mess that you, you accumulate, all the clutter that you get from the condition, um, the conditioning that we get from our educational system today, and and culture, and all the stuff that we um, attain, it's really in a lot of ways about getting back to those simple questions. Because, you know, I, I was a very scientific um, uh, kid up to that point. And with that simple question, like, what is it that makes life grow? Mm-hmm. And at first I thought I had an answer for it. You know, I, I, I explained, you know, something really stupid. I, I forget exactly how I said it, but, you know, like, I don't know, you put a seed in the ground, you water it, and, you know, through nitrates fertilizing it and through, um, you know, different chemical reactions that it, you know, grows into a tree. He was like, that's great. You know, that, you know, that's pretty much, um, you know, that's explaining that the car is driving. What makes the car drive in a sense? So 
it was just, uh, in a way, it was kind of like one of those uh, philosophical, um, how do I want to say it, uh, I don't want to say double entendre, but kind of one of those things that it's, it's kind of, um, there is no concise answer. I don't want to say a rhetorical question, but something along those lines, like those riddles that really don't have an answer. And because what that does, or what that did for me, was it made me really get the um, the, the creative juices in my head flowing to try and uh, wrap my head around this very, very simple answer that I thought I had a question for. And what was happening at that moment was education, in a sense, because it wasn't him telling me what it was that made life grow. He, it was just with that simple question, made me transform almost every um, everything that I had going on in my, in my head at that point. It had to be transformed because I realized that I didn't have a, a suitable answer for these very, very uh, simple and subtle questions to life. Um, and it really just opened me up to the possibility that I'm not always right. So it turned this, you know, smart-ass punk rock addicted kid into, the, you know, I, I was much more humbled at that point. I was able to see my own flaws. I was able to see my own limitations for what they were and realize that all those limitations were self-imposed. So I could say that really that, that simple little question um, by, by a, a tribe that is looked at as, as primitive is really, it was a very, very in, uh, intelligent question. And he knew exactly what he, was, what he was doing to me by asking that question. It wasn't by making me answer that question. He knew exactly the result that was going to come from that question. So I respected that quite a bit. You know, that's interesting. And um, this, this will sound at first like a tangent, but that reminds me a little bit of uh, Nassim Haramine. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. I, I, was actually, I was actually just out in Australia with him. Uh, he was giving talks out in Australia, and I was just out there uh, with him at a couple of his talks. Well, the story um, that, I, that, that he imparts that I think kind of reminds me of that, um, I mean, my, I'm, my personal jury is still out on him. I've seen pro Haramine stuff. I've seen negative. I, I, yeah. you know, I tend to just – I'm not a physicist, so I, I, I'm not going to get into it. But <laughs> one thing he did say, though, and one thing I did learn from watching his, his lectures was how little physicists actually know. <laughs> and oh, yeah. This large gaping hole in, in mainstream physics. And the story that he tells about the uh, the guy blowing up the balloon with <laughs> the pennies glued to it, and everybody's looking at him when he's at this physicist meeting, like, "What's the matter with you? You know, yeah, this is so basic. Why, why are you wasting your time?" And he's like, "I'd like to see the, you know, do you have the formula for this guy?" And he points at the guy blowing up the balloon. <laughs> yeah, and you, you have a formula for everything else. Does anybody know what the formula is that explains the guy blowing up the balloon? <laughs> right. It's every action is an equal opposite reaction. First, right. physics. You know, and that's an example of kind of one of those mind-blowing um, uh, questions that people would prefer you didn't ask because they'd rather be confident that they know everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's like I said, I, you know, I, I do think that he, you know, watching his presentation definitely exposed to me that, you know, and I could just see that because I've seen physicists who get really stuck on themselves. Yeah. You know, um, and he just he was the outside the box thinker. And as I said, I don't personally know if I agree with everything he says, but that was one moment in particular that really made me laugh really, really hard, actually, because I realized what he had done to every man in the room who was kind of glaring at him and hoping he would, you know, die of some kind of terminal illness <laughs> right there. Yeah. Um, and you know, in any case, though, um, now how does this lead to? I mean, you're going from from that into filmmaking. 
something like the you know esoteric agenda, which which has so much stuff that that's obviously not tribal based. Right. Yeah, I guess I didn't really answer your question, did I? <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, basically that was what what got me led me down this path um, of of questioning these things and really. Um, I mean, if uh, any of the listeners that have seen the films that I've done, you'll understand kind of the path that I'm talking about. <clears throat> but um, what made me, in a sense, it's kind of difficult to really point at exactly what made me um, create Esoteric Agenda. Um, a lot of it really just had to do with um, the fact that I, actually, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it was. Um, because as I mentioned before, I'm in a band. Mm-hmm. Um at that point, I really never had any intention of creating a film. I was trying to mess around on, um, I had just gotten a MacBook Pro, and I was messing around on Final Cut Pro, uh, which is a video editing software, on trying to make a music video for the band. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, it, I mean, it's, it's me that, you know, writes the dialogue for the films, and it's also me that writes the lyrics for the band, so there's going to be some similarities there. So um, one thing that from a lot of the, the fans of the band, they were asking uh, for a little bit more of an understanding of what the lyrics were about. So I decided I was going to make a 15, 20-minute little documentary on, um, on the band and to message kind of like the lyrics and explaining that a little bit more. And I was just going to put it up online, you know, for, for the fans. And um, what happened with that was I, I, I then began researching more and investigating more, and uh, what was supposed to be a 15-minute uh, little short film about the, about the band and the message of the band turned into 30 minutes, 45 minutes, uh, an hour and a half to a two-hour and six-minute film that had absolutely nothing to do with the band. <laughs> and um, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, so by the time I was done with that, I, I was just like, you know what, screw it. I'll just throw this up online anyway. And, um, yeah, because, I, I mean, I'd gotten into music, but I didn't even mention the band because uh, as soon as the, the film was done, I, I kind of felt that the information, um, I didn't want to make it sound like I was selling something. Towards the end, I realized that I wasn't adding the band in there at all, and then I just kind of decided that this information, to me, was a little bit too important to put out there as an ad for a band. Um, so I just decided, you know what, I'll, I'll make, you know, the band completely separate. Um, and I actually never did end up getting around to that 15 minute short film for the, for the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I put that, uh, I put Esoteric Agenda up and really if you, if you watch it, um, it's really just, in my personal opinion, if I can criticize my own work, it's a hodgepodge of different, uh, different information. It has, it has a flow to it, and I, that was really my, my main intent. But it's really, it was my first work at just compiling information and putting it out there. So I'm surprised that it was, um, uh, intelligible at all. So by the time it was done, since it was really just me throwing stuff together, and it, it appeared to be a film. I was like, all right, so I'll put it out. Um, and then I started doing some radio interviews based upon it because I was getting a lot of feedback on it. And um, as soon as I started receiving a couple emails from people uh, saying that, you know, hey, it, it changed my life, it really opened my eyes, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, I, I already knew about 90% of the stuff that was in there until it reached the end and it really got into solution think. And the solutions really were based upon 
self-improvement, self-understanding, uh, comprehension, self-sustainability, uh, understanding consciousness and understanding our personal, individual um, impact on our environment, the world, and our symbiotic relationship with all of nature. And um, I actually got one email in particular, which was the email that really drove me to make another film, uh, being Chimatica, which was... Um, which, of course, was going to be my next question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because yeah, <laughs> this, this, all, this all definitely led in... Because at, at the point that I put out Esoteric Agenda, I never really planned for it to be a film. I never planned to be a filmmaker, and I never planned to do anything like that again afterwards. I just kind of did it until I received this one email, and I'm obviously not going to give the name, and I don't want to get too personal with it because it was a very personal email. Um, but it was basically an individual who um, who came to me and said that he um, uh, he he had lost his uh, not not to a, a tra- tragic accident or anything like that, but he had lost his, his wife and his kids because he um, was addicted to various substances and. Um, his family kind of just disowned him and, and wouldn't take him in anymore. And he lost all his friends. He lost his job. It was one of those stories where literally his life was crumbling around him. And he emailed me in the process of um, – and, and this was obviously in the email. It could have been, you know, a, a little bit overdramatic or it could have been a, a little understated. I have no idea because it was through an email. But he was in the, um, in the process of handling a revolver and was just saying, you know, please just give me something. Give me, you know, even lie to me. I don't care. Just say something so I don't, I, you know, I don't have to end it right now. And I I had to take a step back for a second from the computer, and I, I ended up just, I broke down right there, and I cried because I had no idea that anybody in that situation would reach out to somebody like me. Like, what, who, and this is what I was questioning, who was I? You know, uh, I, I put out a documentary. How does that make me uh, an authority figure on absolutely anything? And and this is somebody who, obviously, you know, if it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else. So I, I eventually understood that um, it had nothing to do really with me, but it had to do with he resonated with something that I had said in the past at some point. So he felt that he would reach out to me with such a, a serious issue, and um, and that really. Uh, got me because a lot of the things he was also struggling with. One of the reasons he said that he um, was doing a lot of drugs was to kind of cope with the fact that there was such um, he felt such hopelessness towards the the current condition of the world. He felt that there was there's so much a conspiracy and it was so well woven and we were so doomed as a race that there's there's really no point to even go on. It's just delaying the inevitable. And um, he really, really went down that rabbit hole very hard. And I realized that in some way, shape, or form, I could have contributed to that state, you know, and each each one to their own. You know, we're all uh, are responsible for our own lives. You know, I'm not going to take responsibility for the way he took uh, the information. But then again, that also, on the other hand, made me want to be quite a bit more careful with the information that I, I give out. So that was what pushed me to make Chimatica. And what I did with Chimatica was I really focused on the individual um, and individual consciousness, emotional, mental, psychological, uh, well, psychological is obviously in that, um, and, and the aggregates of all of those things 
that kind of afflict us on a daily, uh, a, you know, a moment-to-moment uh, span of our lives, all these things that afflict us as individuals because we collectively, through these aggregates, through these afflictions, are the ones who uh, create the essence that drives this machine that I explained in Esoteric Agenda, being the slave machine, this corporate um, corporatocracy, this, uh, you know, elite uh, at the top that I was kind of um, uh, exposing in my work. And I realized that it is, it is us, it is the collective that really drives this. We are the essence that uh, makes it possible. And my friend out in Australia, Max Egan, a very good researcher, very good friend of mine, he explained that um, it's really just compliance. And, the, you know, one of the best ways to outmode a system is by just not complying with the current one. And um, it, it sounds overly simple, but in many ways it has to be understood on an individual level. Um, he's not just talking about the political system, the economic system, the social system, the financial system, things like that. Uh, what I interpret that he's saying is that to outmode one of these systems of control that we have within our minds, within our hearts, is to simply stop complying with it. And it's, it's uh, in many ways, it's difficult. You know, in many ways, you're dealing with your own demons and you're dealing with all these psychological blocks that we have, all these emotional blocks, all this repressed uh, content that we haven't processed because in the subconscious, it's not part of the 3% of consciousness that we have. So these are the things that we really need to face and address if we're going to understand our own contribution to our environment. So that's why my work really, really gets into consciousness and being able to understand how we contribute to the system, how we are the ones that are complying with a corrupt and faulty system. That's actually, you know, it's very effective, and it's one of the things that caused me to decide, I mean, um, because you talk about some of that in the Hangman Project video, and we'll get into that in a little bit. I, I actually just wanted to comment on something I found kind of ironic. I, I smiled about it because... Um, the story of how you ended up making uh, Esoteric Agenda is not really that different than the story behind Peter Joseph uh, making the first Zeitgeist film. It was originally meant to be just a musical presentation. Um, he's a musician. and oh, really? Yeah. And um, he, it was just meant to be something like he did a show just one time as kind of a recital. And then people kept asking him to make something of it so that they could see it later. And then he compiled the first Zeitgeist film. And... Um, uh, then it, it kind of took off this, like, you know, wildfire. So that's right. kind of ironic. <laughs> um, hmm. Now, uh, in any case, um, you know, uh, this is, the stuff that you're telling me is actually, you know, really great. And I, I definitely know where you're coming from about emails from people and how they impact you. I get emails about V Radio all the time, and they, they really motivate me uh, to keep doing this. And it also right. it motivates me in life because – it is, you know, one of my major contributions to mankind, being a stay-at-home dad who rents rooms to boarders, and <laughs> I, don't really wow. get, I don't really get out much. So, um, in any case, uh, um, now we've talked about uh, Chimatica, we talked about Esoteric Agenda. Now, uh, what I generally ask people um, in the after aftermath as far as filmmakers, is there anything that you wish you had included or perhaps maybe wish you hadn't included in either of those two films? Well, um, as far as what I wish that I hadn't included, I could probably point out 99% of all the stuff that I put in the films in a way, and that's really just because um, now having such a, like a, a philosophically based mind, 
I can always second guess everything that I've done. In many ways, I try to be very self-critical, but I also try to be very open to what I've done in the past. Um, because, yeah, there's a lot of, um, as much as I tried to remain clear of it, I'm human, and I, I made quite a few assumptions in the film. And I actually, I welcome when people call me out on it. You know, I, I receive emails of people calling me out on um, little tiny things that they, you know, they disagree with. And in many ways, I agree with them more than I agree with the way that I put it in the film. So um, it, it just so happens that, yeah, there, there's quite a bit that I, I wouldn't uh, put in there. But really, the reason why I, I kind of like them the way they are is because, in a sense, it's it's truthful to me because I did it out of uh, out of my heart. You know, a lot of it, it, a lot of it was intellectual, of course, but there it's kind of the same as as um, as just any organism or any individual. I believe there's more subtle levels than just the physical and just the energetic that. Uh, science can pick up on obviously we know we have emotions and we know we have thoughts and we know we have subtle you know subtle levels to ourselves i believe that there's also a, a subtle level to um to the films that i've made and in many ways it's just kind of truthful i you know i would hate to research a bunch of uh crap that i've never experienced and just because it sounds good and just because i can intellectualize and theorize it in a way that other people it sounds good to other people I don't want to be putting information out there that is beyond my level. You know, I mean, because there's quite a few things I, I wanted to include in both of those films, um, specifically in the spiritual side of things, specifically in the conscious side of things um, that I've read that make very, very good connections between science and spirituality. Um, but the thing is, is it was all intellectual at, at that point, you know, so I could have included it, but it would have been a lie. You know, because I had not experienced that, and it would have just been me regurgitating somebody else's information. So, really, um, I'm kind of happy with both the films. Even though Esoteric Agenda, I feel, was a little fear-mongering. I feel um, I definitely pointed out far more problems. Um, I, I, I should say I gave a lot more time to the problems than I gave to the solutions. But, um, really, um, it, it kind of also has a signature of me in it because it kind of shows what level I was at at that point. You know, that's, right. those are the things I was dealing with. So it's kind of, it's personal in a way. So when, when I see the film, it reminds me of what I was going through at that time. And um, because this journey for me, as much as I do, you know, as much as I can for everybody else, um, you know, I, I give of myself as much as I can. It's also for me. You know, uh, we wouldn't want to go to a sick doctor, you know, uh, to to, to work on us or to try and heal us in any way, shape, or form. So in many ways, I really have to be uh, walking the walk while I'm talking the talk. And if I'm not, I hope I am exposed. You know, I hope somebody does point it out that I, you know, I'm, I'm basically just spouting off things that other people have said that sound good for uh, popularity. You know, I, you know, me, myself, I believe that I'm at a certain point right now where I have um, – I have the ability to give some of this information, some of these things uh, that I've learned along the way, I have the um, uh, the ability to actually give them in a way that people can understand, and I hope that they take it for what it's worth, and I hope that they look between the lines and the information. Because there's, there's a lot of details I could take out, you know, because 
I get a lot of people emailing me about details, like little tiny details, and say, well, I disagree with this, blah, 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 this, that, and the other, you know, so your, your whole film is crap. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I feel that way. What did you think about the film in general? And they say, well, you know, well, I, I found, you know, this little flaw, I found that little flaw. You said this is one part of the film, and then you said this, and it sounds like a contradiction to me. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Thank you for pointing that out. So, again, what do you think of the actual overall film? Right. And, and in many ways, it's, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like the essence of a film, if you will. I, and with Kinematica, I feel it was, it was a little bit more it – was, it was moving more from just kind of like the topical level into the inner levels of, of uh, the psyche, which um, in many ways I'm just trying to touch upon different levels of the same thing, which is life. It's just reality. I'm trying to uh, give my uh, experience and the things that have helped me along the way – and impart that upon other people if they can use it as a tool, not as a, um, a reference like this is the way it needs to be done, but as a tool. If other, could, uh, if other people could use these tools to help themselves, that's really what I, I meant for the film. And that's really what the Hanged Man Project is in a way. It's, it's something that I, 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 try to, I, I try to expound upon and I try to show people that it's not a... Uh, how should I say it? It's not an organization that you become a part of. It's not a project that now I'm part of the Hangs Man project. It's nothing like that. It's a tool in a, in a sense. It's, it's a tool that people could use, hopefully, and this is my, my hope, is that people could use it to enrich their lives both on a physical, mental, emotional, and whatever level they, they choose to believe in. Hopefully it can, it can help them out, and that's what this project is about, is about building community and other individuals who might be of like mind because, in a sense, we, we could build a system to try and fix some of the, the problems that we have today. We could find, we could sit here and enumerate all the problems that we see in society and we could list all of them. And if we sat here for long enough, I'm pretty sure we could list just about all of them and write them down and figure out a solution for every single one of them. But the reason why community is great and the reason why individuals and, and the organic uh, lifestyle of communities is great is because if tomorrow there comes a, a problem that was not foreseen today, then tomorrow we as organisms, as what life does is it adapts. It can adapt to that problem. But if we, again, fall back into dogma and say that, no, we, we you know, like, we can't include that problem in, a, in our system because we don't have a mechanism to really digest that problem. So we'll just leave that out for now until we figure something out for it. If, if it's a community-based thing, people can always adapt as long as they are willing to change for the good of life in general, not just humans, not just the planet, not just a specific species, but life in general. Because I don't believe there is a disconnect between any different species, any different kingdom of nature. I believe it's all, uh, George Carlin said it the best. Uh, he was talking about abortion at the time, and he said, you know, some people believe that uh, life starts at conception. Some people believe that life starts at the third trimester or right at the moment of birth. He was like, I think life started billions of years ago and has been going continuously since then. And I thought that was one of the best ways to put it is, you know, we are a community of life, of living entities, of living organisms that are living on a larger living organism called the Earth. That is part of a larger living organism. And just because we don't understand it and relate it to our form of living or our form of intelligence 
doesn't mean that it is not intelligent, doesn't mean that it's not alive. And in many ways, like, I, I just try to check myself and make sure that I'm not being naive in believing that I have all the answers and solutions today because tomorrow I could find another one of those questions like that shaman gave me, what makes life grow, that can completely throw everything out the window. So it's just a matter of the, the hanged man, um, just to kind of briefly uh, explain why I chose that title for it, is because the hanged man in this tarot deck is upside down. He's viewing the world exactly opposite of the way he's always viewed the world before, and all of the change in his pocket has fallen to the ground beneath him because he's upside down, which means all the value, uh, what I gather out of that symbolism is the value that he placed on all the things that he once saw in the world has fallen away from him. So he's seeing the world like a child. He's seeing it brand new again, and that releases a lot of the, the, the dogmas, a lot of the, um, the, the structures and a lot of the, the rigidity that keeps us from being able to be malleable and adapt to new situations and to new problems and to adapt to life. You know, rigidity is really what keeps us, you know, with our, with our noses and our, and our eyes focused upon one thing, you know, and, and really that's, that's the absence of life. That's, that's, the, that's the catabolic process that really just boils down to focusing all of our energy on a very minute portion of life and neglecting all other portions of life. So the reason that I use the, the word uh, or the title Hanged Man Project is really just it's a challenge to all those people that want to in some way, shape, or form uh, use the Hanged Man Project as a tool for their lives. It's really just a challenge to, you know, for now, just try it for a week. Go throughout the next week doing everything exactly opposite. You know, not, not to really try and change your life and, and see what it does for you and see if you can make money off of it, but just challenge yourself because you'll learn about yourself when you do these things. Like, try in traffic if somebody cuts you off. Instead of thinking of all the ways that you're going to run this guy off the road and beat him to death, try and think about um, all the ways that you can understand why somebody might be in a hurry, might have to hop in front of you, all the ways that you love that individual, all the reasons why you could give compassion and understanding to that person. And it's not about, um, it's not about getting something out of that that you know, most people would imagine. It's just about challenging yourself and breaking yourself out of an old, outmoded system because everybody says they want change. Everybody wants change in their lives, but they don't, in some way, shape, or form, realize that change is, is a, uh, there's a dual approach to it. And it's really not dual because it's one and the same. I don't believe there's any difference between us and our environment. But it's understanding that you can change your environment, but you also need to change with that environment. Otherwise, you're not adapting to your environment. So in a way, it's, it's understanding the connection between the self and the environment. Now, um, I, I also say is I definitely want to get into the hangman. Pro- I'm sorry, the hangman project in a lot more detail. I had a couple more filmmaker questions, just also okay. out of my own curiosity. You know, it's one of the things that always comes up when people try to uh, debunk these films is they always say things like, you know, well, this quote is false, that quote is false. Yeah. Um, like the the Thomas Jefferson quote about banks being more dangerous than standing armies that's in zeitgeist is one of the mm-hmm. ones that people always say is a fake quote. And it's one of the frustrating things about history because it's like, you know, a couple of guys on the Internet, probably neither of them are historians. One thing that is guaranteed is that neither of them were there, so they can't tell for sure. Right, right. That. I, just, I, I was curious, like, you know, because you have a lot of good quotes in your, in your film, 
What, what are the sources of things like that when you're making these films? Where do you get these quotes? I mean, especially from people like the Rothschilds or, you know, the Bilderbergers, you know, some of the stuff that we get a hold of on these people, it's like, where did this come from? Because they're supposed to be so secretive. How do you ever get a hold of anything these people say, especially some of the damning stuff that I've heard quoted on different Alex Jones, you know, films, Peter Joseph right. films, et cetera? Yeah, um, a lot of the uh, the sources, I mean, to understand it in a way, uh, specifically people that get into the conspiracy side of things, um, immediately, just like anything else in life, we we immediately start building our own theory and our own idea of how this changes our perception of the world. So typically, and I know, uh, I, I think I've seen even uh, Peter mention something like this, there's this thing called the they, you know, everybody says they, you know, they're out to get us, they're trying to destroy us, they're trying to control the world. And in many ways, to understand what that they truly is, you have to understand that these are also individuals, these are people, and these are different organizations. And in many ways, it may not be, I think there's one reason why I, I like one thing by Robert Anton Wilson that he said, he was like, you know, I believe that there's a conspiracy out there, but I don't believe it nearly as um, as organized as most people believe it is. And I believe, I, I agree with what he said there to a certain extent. I don't believe on an intellectual, uh, individual level that it's n- n- anywhere near as organized as most people believe it is. Um, I believe that there are um, impulses, there are primal archetypal impulses that do drive these types of things, and that, that's very organized because it's, it's a part of an order that everything draws its energy from. And that, I mean, I can get into that later, but basically to, to explain more about the, the quotes thing is say somebody like uh, um, Albert Pike with uh, the, the, his book Morals and Dogma. He wrote a whole book that's basically explaining that he, within Freemasonry, um, you know, they're, they basically have information the way they they kind of compose their information or the the way they hand down information is very secretive for certain reasons. And then he even says that, but even we at the top of the Freemason Lodge understand that there are um, uh, there are forces that work well above our you know current comprehension. So he's saying that you know even us, the top of the elite, saying that he you know they are uh, you know a, a faction of an elite uh, organization that has control of many political, uh, economic, financial um, uh, kind of establishments in the world at that time. He was even he was calling himself out with that, and he was also saying giving quotes such as there's also forces above us that even we don't know. The elite, we the elite don't even know. So in many ways, uh, and again, there's also the Carol Quigleys and people who've written books, and they're pretty much just being kind of pompous about it. And then there's the the big new Brzezinski's who kind of, uh, which I pointed out in my film, uh, Chimatica, where he even explains, um, in a sense, that really it, it's, it's about a, a perceived threat that can control the population. And in many ways, uh, I mean, this is getting a little bit too far into my opinion on how individuals work, but I believe that they're, they're just individuals. And the reason why sometimes uh, it seems like, why would somebody say that? It sounds like they want to get caught. Well, in many ways, 
they themselves, in my personal opinion, aren't even truly aware of the greater purpose that they're actually serving. And that's not to say that there, there's, you know, an elite group of shape-shifting reptilians at the top of the, you know, the pyramid that are controlling everything in the world. I have absolutely no idea. But these uh, these individuals, they are merely uh, the, the top of banking industries. They are merely just uh, at the at the top of um, political pyramids. And they, they do hold down jobs. They do have families. They do have lives just like everybody else, even the Rothschild family. You know, and as much as they're privy to information on a far superior level than we are, they're still individuals that have uh, families and they have lives just like everybody else. And so, in a way, the reason why a lot of these quotes do come out, in my personal opinion, which could be wrong, in my personal opinion, it's because they don't see that, um, they don't see it the way that we see it. In many ways, we, we have um, a big us and them type of thing, uh, a complex going on. In many ways, I don't see that these, um, these families are exactly the way that even I pointed out in Esoteric Agenda. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the, um, the ways that I kind of propped them up and uh, the, um, what drives them, I was kind of propping them up in a way that even I didn't fully understand at that time. So, uh, and really quickly to touch base on, like, say, that Thomas Jefferson quote that's, you know, you know, because there are many quotes that are looked at as, oh, it was forged, he didn't actually say it, this, that, and the other. To me, my, you know, I've gotten quite a few people that even say that, and some people comment on my work saying that, you know, I use the Frederick Nietzsche quote, and some people hate Frederick Nietzsche, so therein lies the problem. They hate my film because I use the Frederick Nietzsche quote. Well, the thing is, is, I could give a quote and leave it anonymous and say it, um, say something about animal rights. And everybody could be, oh, that sounds great. Who is that, Gandhi? No, it was Hitler because Hitler was an animal rights activist. You know what I mean? He, you know, he believed in animal rights. So, I mean, the thing to understand is who cares? This is why my work gets into consciousness and it gets into our own individual interaction with our lives, like actually living our lives rather than intellectualizing our lives, interacting with our environment. Because the thing is, is who really cares if Thomas Jefferson actually said that or not? What did you get from that quote? What does that quote mean to you? How does it impact you in your life? And again, with, with the film's um, uh, zeitgeist and zeitgeist addendum, um, regardless of the information that's in it, regardless of uh, any of the details or any of the facts and, um, and names and dates and stuff that were used in it, uh, regardless of any of that, what I have to say is what do people think of the overall intention, the essence, actually, you know, the, the, the kind of motivating drive of the film? What does it drive you to do? Because in many ways, like, uh, it's, to me, when people are speaking about a philosophy book, that philosophy isn't created by that philosopher. The philosophy, is, these are questions that are there. And in many ways, like, a philosopher is merely just stating things that are, are those fundamental questions that have always been there. And it's kind of like if I were to write a book on gravity, and I'm the first one to write a book on gravity, I don't create gravity. I'm merely theorizing about something that's already there. So my, my point behind all this is the fact that really what are you, the audience member, the listener, the reader of that book, what are you gaining from a documentary or a book or a passage or a, a quote, 
something like that? How does it impact you in your life? Because if we're wrapped up in the details of, uh, well, that actually wasn't Thomas Jefferson, that was, you know, blah, 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 and Shakespeare actually never existed. It was, uh, you know, I, I forget, Sir Francis Bacon. You know, it doesn't really matter. What do the words actually mean to you? Because it's you, it's your life. You know, again, we weren't there a couple hundred years ago to actually um, videotape it and to prove and put a timestamp on it and put it in the newspaper and, and show that, yes, oh, it actually was Thomas Jefferson that gave this quote. To me, that's absolutely irrelevant. And in many ways, that's kind of leading the whole point of the film, because um, I've gotten the same things with my film, that's leading the point of the whole film in a direction that, uh, is completely antithetical to the point of the film in the first place. Now, um, we okay. So we we talked about you know that that's that the reason I brought that up, and it wasn't because I really even doubted anything that was in the films. You know, they they get debated back and forth. I definitely agree with you about the thought provoking nature, and I quote things all the time. You know, like mm. I quote, for example, Adolf Hitler and his big lie. You know, you repeat the lie often enough. We're gonna we're gonna definitely get into that for yeah. in the next hour when we talk about being slaves and stuff like that, and how people don't realize how really enslaved they are. But you know, it, it doesn't mean I advocate national socialism um, <laughs> or yeah. Nazism or fascism. In fact, I quote it because I'm trying to make people aware of the thought process that goes through the minds of people who are trying to control them. And I also, you know, there there are different quotes. Like uh, there's a, you know, there are people who despise Michael Moore. And I, you know, I played a film because BTV actually was the, the Ron Paul television show that I did on Justin TV using, you know, Internet technology. And uh, I'd play a documentary, and then we'd have a discussion after every documentary I played. And, you know, I played a Michael Moore film. And then they just wouldn't shut up about the fact that Michael Moore was in the film. He, he actually was only one of the people in the film. It was Orwell Rolls in His Grave. I don't know if you're familiar with that work, but um, yeah. oh yeah, it's very good, and you'd like it a lot because it's about it, Orwell rolls in his grave, and Outfoxed are both great documentaries about how bad the media is really a tool to manipulate and control people. But um, at one point, Michael Moore says, you know, and then we got all these little people running around with little, you know, little flags waving them, saying, "We're free, we're free, we live in a democracy," you know, and and he was right. He was talking about people who are not in any way aware of the fact that. Their freedom was nowhere near as good as they thought it was. Um, but they're patriotic, and they get out and they vote for their pre-selected, you know, presidential candidates, and they think that that means they're participating in some sort of system that's setting them free. Right. Um, now, in any case, though, it, it's, it is difficult because sometimes people associate, like, certain topics, for example. I, I bring this one up all the time. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Stuff um, by Annie Leonard, um, I'm familiar with it, yeah. It's a brief little film about how we are kind of ruining our planet in the name of consumerism. It's only about 20 minutes long. You can watch it on YouTube. But anyway, she did another one called The Story of Cap and Trade. And because she's an environmentalist and she happens to endorse the global warming theory, then people just didn't want to listen to anything else she said. Um, even though a lot of the other stuff that she's saying is actually very relevant. But they were talking about, you know, because she took a stance on the global warming situation that they didn't like, well, that must mean that everything she says is wrong. And I don't believe that for a minute either. I, my personal stance on global warming is, as it is with most things, it's one of the reasons why we advocate a, a, an eventual moneyless society in the Venus Project, is that uh, all research in the situation, there's just, it's just like the drug thing. There's just too much damn money being made on both sides of the global warming issue. 
am I going to be inclined to trust the scientist who works for an oil lobby and, you know, and what he's going to tell me? Obviously not. Mm-hmm. I'm also not going to be inclined to believe a scientist who's interested, you know, in furthering any politician's agenda to create a carbon tax. You know, so it's, it's one of those situations where I, I just kind of decide to say, look, um, one way or another, um, pollution is bad. And, you know, we do know that, for example, you know, stopping a lot of pollution we have will stop bad things like acid rain. So even if global warming is not created by man, whatever, that's not a reason to just, you know, not listen to another word Annie Leonard ever says, because most of the stuff she said is, like, spot on, and you can't argue with it. You know, can't have infinite production on a planet with finite resources. That just stands to reason. Um, and it's, guilt by association can be something that's, that's really, really out of whack. So, in any case, um, now, well, now, let's first of all start with, uh, you know, making sure that we get out this issue about the, the Hangman Project. Now, it's been a while since Thematica. What, what brought you into deciding, okay, now I want to have a movement, you know, and, and let, let's get into that. And you're like, what, first of all, what made you decide to do it? And then we'll get into the specifics of what you want to accomplish with it. Okay. Yeah, basically, I had the, um, <clears throat> the intentions to release the Hanged Man Project actually before Chimatica, um was released. It was actually while I was working on Chimatica. But um, really what it was was I just didn't want to get into the habit of just making films and then just doing that over and over and over again um, because I noticed that there's, there's quite a few uh, people out there that are saying much of the stuff that I was already saying. And I, in a sense, I, I wasn't questioning um, what I could actually provide and, and help people with. But uh, I also didn't want to flood the market with um, a bunch of the same so I was trying to think of different mediums in which I could actually reach certain people and reach out to people. And I, I found the the best method through a lot of the – because I was doing uh, international um, presentations uh, up in Canada, down in Brazil, um, and uh, quite a few other places like right here in the States. And what I noticed was that community and the actual relationship uh, between people within their community, that those, those bonds that people make just to have somebody in their own community, um, because, again, talking about what I was talking about before was the fact that people can adapt to just about any situation if they're, um, if they're up to changing, if they're actually allowing themselves to change. So I realized that community is the best thing to really build. Um, and that was really just what kind of led me to wanting to do this was I noticed that um, people, uh, in a sense, it's, it's kind of the, the comfort of having people there with them, and it's also putting minds together to be able to uh, learn from one another. But I also believe that people and these relationships with the people in our local community are, the, in a sense, a mirror to our soul. It's through our relationships that we learn a lot about ourselves. It's also our relationship with our environment that we learn about ourselves, but specifically with other people. And again, you know, we know this just through experience. You learn a lot about yourself when you come into very close personal uh, contact um, in close relationships with people. You learn quite a bit about how you react. Now, whether you associate that with you learning about yourself or just learning about the world and learning about how relationships work, you really are learning about yourself in many ways. 
And that's why I really I do advocate pushing that comfort zone and pushing that little barrier to get out and actually meet people and establish those relationships. Because in the end, we really do only have each other. You know, we're all in this together. Um, all, you know, established systems, technologies, all those things aside, we, in the end, really only have, you know, each other. And I really just wanted to establish my, um, you know, my encouragement for getting people together in their local communities. And there are very, you know, uh, activist-based things that I also wanted uh, to see come out of it in a way. But I wasn't about to at the very inception of it um, try and give ideas of what I thought should come out of it because, again, what kind of authority am I? You know, I, I'm just in the same boat as everybody else, so I wanted to build this community within my own community and also around the world, um, which it, it's been slowly happening since July 4th when I actually did release the project. Um, and I noticed that, I'm, you know, I, I learned far more uh, when I go out to give a presentation, like I was just out in Australia giving a presentation out there, and I learned far more from the people out there than they learned from me. And that's typically how it always goes. I always am learning. Me, myself, the one who, who have made these documentaries that people are asking me to come out and speak about, I'm the one that's learning most of the time. So um, I realized that I was learning a lot about permaculture. I was learning a lot about um, growing food, sustainable living, uh, e- even just little fancy things like aquaponic systems and understanding how different uh, species and different um, uh, forms of life actually um, sustain each other. There's a symbiotic relationship within, like, the, the whole basis of a permaculture garden or a permaculture farm is allowing for nature to do what it naturally does best, and that's be the laborer. You know, nature in and of itself, it does labor for you. If you if you allow for overgrowth of trees and you allow the foliage to drop into the ground uh, where the garden is, and then you allow for mycelium, which is a fungus, to break it down, and the mycelium acts as a brain so it knows how to distribute minerals under the ground, and then you have naturally, uh, natural-induced uh, bacteria that um, is good, actually good for the plants, and then you have birds and chickens and ducks that are introduced that eat all the pests that you would have needed uh, pesticides and things like that for, and then all the waste from those birds are used as the nitrates that go into the ground that eventually fertilize the plants, and also the uh, the chickens and the ducks and the uh, the birds and everything else they're they're eating um, all the pests so they're being fed and it's a self-contained organism right there it's a self-contained ecosystem to where the laborer the individual that would have been toiling that farm that would have been working that farm is obsolete now not obsolete in a bad way because the, uh, what do you get out of that you get surplus and that's just one idea that is flourishing around the world. Like just with, that's just with food. Think of how you can um, kind of expand that out into other facets of our lives. So it's really, I wouldn't have learned these things if I wasn't actually getting out there and meeting this global community that we have right now. So what I've noticed through experience is that the more you get out there and actually meet your local farmer, meet your local um, alternative healer, or you meet your local uh, just neighbor, your individual who may have a lawnmower that you need or may have something, uh, maybe some advice that they could give you. You never know until you actually get out and meet people. And what I found most about 
the world today is we're actually, in a sense, building these little tiny prisons for ourselves. We want more security in our house. We want tinted windows in our cars. We, we you know, want more um, privacy, you know, tree lines around our house. We don't want people to be able to see from their house over to us, and I understand that to a certain extent, but in a way we're cutting ourselves off. We're no longer going out and meeting our local farmers. We're going to the local grocery store, and now there's these self-checkout aisles where we don't have to talk to a single person. So everything that we uh, we need in our lives is taken care of corporately. It's not taken care of locally anymore, so it's not supporting local economy. It's taken care of corporately. And the way that that is really affecting us on a subconscious level, imagine, I mean, because we, we're just scratching the surface. We know a lot about science today, but we don't need, we're just scratching the surface on science. Imagine how little we're actually even scratching the surface on things such as psychological or emotional aggregates that we have. You know, uh, we, we hardly understand why we even have emotions and thoughts and how to explain them, let alone how to really deal with them, how to process these things. And in many ways, we're losing our contact. We're losing our connection with nature. So we're not even connecting with our community anymore. We're losing those simple relationships. So obviously, you're going to see things like the family structure breaking down and, um, and our, our, real, our, our real loss of connectivity with nature. And I'm not, I'm not just talking connection with nature as in getting out into, you know, uh, going camping and putting your hands in dirt and stepping in water and things like that. I'm, I'm talking about the actual nature of life, of individuals, of relationships and things like that. So that, that's really the, the biggest point for the Hanged Man Project to be a tool for people is really just to learn how to establish that relationship and learn not just about our, our uh, local world, you know, our local environment, but to learn about ourselves and how we interact with our world. So it's really just a tool to learn. If, if I had to put it very succinctly, it's a tool to learn or to know, to, you know, to grow, to develop, to evolve. Right. Yeah, okay, so basically it's kind of a matter of developing something also in, in, in so doing, developing yourself. Now, it, one of the things, and I understand about the leaderless structure that has always been complicated, is that uh, the first thing you end up doing is you end up attracting a lot of people who have insecurities about any form of authority at all. Right. Um, and they don't recognize that you can't even get anything accomplished if, if you take it to that hyperactive level. Um, in addition to that, um, there's also just what do you do to keep the you know, things on message? It's like Peter Joseph, for example, doesn't want to be the leader of the Zeitgeist movement, nor does Jacques Fresco. But you still end up in situations like where you'll find people particularly, they'll project their own things onto what the zeitgeist movement should be, and they're not necessarily compatible with the overall ideology of what it is you're trying to do. I mean, you know, for example, if, if somebody tried to join the Hang Man Project and their, and their big thing was trying to teach people how to be better brainwashed consumers or right. how to value Fox News, you know, where, where do you find yourself at that point? What do you do? Because, you know, it is something you founded, and obviously you see people making that mistake. Um, and it puts you in a position, a very awkward position, because you don't really want to be an authoritarian, but if, if they're starting to get outside of it, as the founder, you still have to be able to tell them, okay, well, that's, that's not what we're about. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Do you have any solutions for that? <laughs> Absolutely. It's kind of funny, and this is um, this is kind of where I really like the way my work goes, um, it, it's, it's fun in a sense because in a way it really aggravates people 
to a sense where, um, let's say, using the example that, you know, say if somebody wanted to, um, you know, step into the forums of the Hanged Man Project and really promote um, consumerism, really promote, uh, you know, Fox News, you know, exactly, things like that. Um, I would do the really what I've done and through the Hangman project this is this is me also learning how to interact with some of these people but in a lot of ways I I just I I call them on it and I said that's great that's awesome you know send me because uh, I've had people kind of just like playing with me before that you know send like ironic messages that kind of just say you know oh well in that case why don't we just do this and do that and like like you were saying kind of, uh, they go off on their own tangent about the worst case scenario of everything. And in many ways, I'm just like, uh, I just say that, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. We should, you know, we, uh, we should really look further into Fox News. Like you said, please write up an article and I will post it on my page. And people stop right there. Because in many ways, all I'm really doing is I'm calling them on their intention for sending that type of message. So some people are trying to be smart asses. Some people are honestly um, concerned, you know, and I, I, um, I don't know all of them, but, you know, I've, I've heard some people's concerns on the Venus Project, some people's concerns on the Zeitgeist Movement, and obviously I get a lot of people that are concerned about what I'm doing uh, in many ways uh, with, with the Hangs Man Project. Um, I've, I've gotten some people saying that it's... Um, well, one individual, I, I can't say some people, one individual emailed me and said, I talk about consciousness so much and I talk about really working on ourselves and liberating ourselves from all of these inner psychological things, all of these emotional uh, habits that we have and understanding ourselves more, saying that I, um, uh, I'm, I'm working for the other side. I must be a CIA agent that was planted here to um, waste people's times with nonsense about consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and that, to me, is, is, that, that is actually a concern of this person. I actually noticed that this wasn't him just trying to, to bust my balls. This was actually a concern. Now, he didn't actually believe I was a CIA agent, but he was trying to make a point. And in many ways, I said, that's good. That's very, very good that you're looking at it this way. And I said, you know, please, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put down any way you choose to view me or my documentaries or what, the, or what you think I am trying to do. Because this, to me, is a part of the Hanged Man Project. It doesn't matter what you believe in. It doesn't matter if you believe the world should stay exactly the same. It doesn't matter if you actually want the world to stay in this supposed democracy, you know, uh, to me you're still, you could still be part, and I, I can't say be part of the Hangman Project, but you can still use the Hangman Project for your benefit because what the project is really all about is learning why you are the way you are. Why do we have certain desires to either change the world or stay the same as we are? Why do we have desires to either vote you know, Republican or Democrat or not to vote at all? Why do we have desires to believe in all these conspiracies or to completely shut them out and think that they're all stupid? You know, I I don't ask about the information. I can care less about the information most of the time. I want people to investigate what it is within them that makes them attracted to a certain type of information or a certain movement or a certain person or repel themselves from that person. Because that, to me, is the essence 
that drives a lot of this. And to me, in mythology, in religion, you get this epic duality that we hear about all the time, uh, good versus evil, light versus dark, night versus day, masculine versus feminine. It's electromagnetic in nature, and if you really, really look at it, it's these primal impulses that really do branch out into a million different derivatives that are the different um, aspects and facets of our lives. And if you really, really, truly look at that, I don't care what people believe in. I just want people to observe, and that is the basis of consciousness. The basis of, con- uh, of being an awakened consciousness is to be observant and to judge the world. I'm going to try and find a quote that uh, I actually found was great, if I can actually even find it. Um, Basically, I I forget the uh, philosopher's name, uh, but it it was a couple hundred years ago, he said the quote that uh, a fanatic or a lunatic or a psychopath is typically defined as somebody who bases his opinion of reality on imagination rather than true judgment rather than sound, firm judgment. That is, and if you look at the world today, unfortunately, this is not an insult because I'm including myself. We are living a largely sociopathic, um, fanatic, uh, within a fanatic system. And the system is not some external thing. It's not some external uh, um, lifeless thing that is controlling us. It is us. We are the essence that drives that system. We are the ones that have created this, um, uh, you know, this corrupt system that we are actually existing within right now. So the reason why I bring that up is um, because what I truly believe is that judgment, sound judgment, and I, I don't know if this is exactly what uh, what you and uh, Peter call like the, the scientific method, but truly just experiencing your life and observing what goes on in your life psychologically, emotionally, uh, physically, environmentally, it doesn't matter what it is. Observe it and don't feel that you immediately have to come to an answer on it. Just observe it because that is really just, that, that's the basic function of consciousness is to be aware, to perceive, to have the ability of even just perceiving things. But really jumping right into uh, trying to shape our lives and trying to change the world and trying to mold our environment to fit us in many ways, I, all I ask of people is to investigate why they think the world needs to be changed in any sh- uh, way, shape, or form. I personally agree. I think the world needs to change. But I would just encourage people to try and understand what it is that actually drives them to want to change things, why, what they want to change it towards, why they want to change it that way what it is about them that actually feels that that would be the solution as opposed to any other solution. And it's really, I mean, there is no answer. It's very rhetorical in a way. But that, to me, that's why it gets so aggravating. And that's why, you know, to, to these people, you know, uh, to come full, full, uh, full circle back to what you are originally saying, is, you know, these people that pop up within uh, a group or a movement and, you know, they, they com- come out with these questions, I don't believe that any of it is truly uh, damaging to the, the true cause of the Hangman Project because the cause of the Hangman Project is really all-inclusive. Everybody, all life in general, is really truly a part of it because all it is is about learning about oneself, knowing about oneself. 
Because I personally, and this is my own personal contention, but I believe that every single type of uh, revolution in the world is absolutely obsolete unless it is rooted in consciousness, unless consciousness is understood as being a primary driving force of it. Yes, that does entail physical things. Yes, that does entail physical action. But to me, and this is, again, my own personal contention, no revolution is true without the basis of, uh, of consciousness because consciousness is that driving force. You know, if we are the physical vehicle, if we are a physical vehicle, the driver is consciousness. And that's, that's really why all of my work, uh, specifically in uh, Kymatica, is dedicated to that very subject, consciousness. It's to try and at least give people an understanding of the fact that we in, are interacting with our lives. You know, it's not just happening to us. It's not just, you know, we're a victim to whatever the hell happens. We have a choice to react in certain ways. And those reactions are what actually scientifically sets up the neural network within our brains that will allow for the path of least resistance. The next time uh, any environmental signal comes in, we're going to react to it, not through judgment, because if we're not careful, we won't react to it through judgment or intuition. We'll react to it because of ritual and habit, because last time we reacted to it, we reacted to it in this way. So next time, it'll be easier to react to it in that way. So I was giving you the example earlier of, let's say a child, when uh, a child is born, falls off a couch and immediately associates couches with pain. Let's say that child never releases that association. That child will set up a neural hardwired circuit within his dendrite, within the synapses. Um, for the next time it comes across that couch, it's immediately going to associate, unless it comes up with a different reaction to that event. But if it associates couches with pain, then the next time it's going to be easier for that child to immediately associate that couch or all couches with pain rather than a sound judgment. So that's kind of why it's so difficult to actually change things in the world. That's why in the, in the Hanged Man Project address that I gave on July 4th, I actually said, how is it that we went through one of the most immaculate revolutions, physical revolutions uh, in, in our recorded history um, breaking away from Great Britain here in the United States, and now 200 years later, we're even more depraved and more destructive than we ever were. What is it about that? Like, what actually happened? And the way I bring it out in that 10-minute um, video, that we, didn't, we only changed the topical, physical side of things. We didn't change ourselves on the inside. We didn't free ourselves in some way, shape, or form psychologically. So in some way, shape, or form, we were still children as of that point. We still needed a parent figure. And what is a parent figure when you blow it up to a collective? It's government. That's all government is. Government comes from uh, the words govern and mente, which is the, the control of the mind. So really, government, in a sense, is nothing more than a parent. And a parent is there to foster, so it should be there, to foster an environment for the child to eventually grow into its own self-sustaining uh, adult, into an adult that can take care of itself. But government is this perpetual parent that uh, I, I wish I could find the actual quote. Teddy Roosevelt actually even uh, gave a great quote that's saying um, uh, government is inescapable, whether it's in us 
or it's outside of us, government is inescapable. Now, we can be sovereign on the, on the inside, and we can govern ourselves. But for those who choose not to govern themselves on the inside, they uh, will be doomed to be governed on the outside. So, and I, I love that quote because basically that's the, uh, that's the epitome of all of my work is the fact that if we do not um, govern ourselves, if we are not self-regulating individuals, then we, we fall prey to being regulated and governed by an outside force. And who knows what that outside force could be? Uh, I think actually it was in your film, Plato says uh, that the price of not participating in politics is that you end up governed by your inferiors. Absolutely. And, I, and, and one, uh, one actual way that I even take that quote is not just politics in the sense of, um, of what we look at politics to be today, but our body is basically... Um, we have politics within our body. Gardens have politics. Uh, ecosystems have politics. It's, um, in many ways, it's looked at as the allocation of resources, but that's not just physical resources. That's energy. That's um, how the energy and matter will synthesize to bring about new reactions within the body, how things actually get done through you know, thermodynamics. It's politics is natural. It's very natural. And what I believe... Plato was actually talking about was, um, and again, this is my own personal belief, but if we choose not to involve ourselves with that form of politics, meaning the natural governing system within ourselves, then we fall prey to being governed by our inferiors. And to me, uh, this is my own spin on it, but being governed by our inferiors in a natural sense, in in a form of nature, is a devolving form of nature. It's a catabolic process that, you know, there, we, we know that there's growth and we know that there's destruction. Well, this is a catabolic instead of an anabolic form of, uh, of an inferior form of politics. Basically, it is there to break down the structure, to break down the system. And in many ways, you see that naturally. You see that in, uh, I mean, you hear about agents of order and agents of chaos. And I, I love those terms because you see this in nature. If a tree falls down, a tree is order, in a sense. It's an order of life. And when it falls down, natural agents of chaos will come and start a catabolic process, like fungi, uh, bacteria. It will break that back down into its base elements so new life can grow. And that's the thing that happens within our body. Cells die. They, you know, um, there's cellular apoptosis. And cells die every single second within our body. And um, this happens, so uh, not to get into a scientific understanding of it, but everything that we perceive, it's a three-pronged approach. There's consciousness that drives matter and energy. And matter and energy are in a constant synthetic relationship with one another. So matter works upon energy and is transformed by that energy. And that's, that's basically the first law of thermodynamics is, Nothing in the universe happens without the transformations of energy. Energy is transformed by matter, and it is active upon, uh, energy acts upon that matter. So basically, what happens is if you look at a storm in nature and you see thousands of uh, species being wiped out because of the storm, if you see trees being ripped down, this is a natural form of nature to liberate energy from matter. 
And then what happens from that? It eventually gets broken down by those agents of, uh, agents of chaos, and they build back up into new life. Because if nothing ever died, then there would be no way to, uh, for, for life to really evolve in, in, in a true sense. Because in our body, the way we grow and we evolve, we don't have the same cells within our body that we did when we were um, born. We constantly regenerate those cells. So what is it within all these little tiny organisms within the body that make up a full human being? That's what I love in investigating is truly there's an essence that holds together this organism for a common purpose. Do I know what that purpose is? Absolutely not. I'm on a constant journey to try and find what that purpose is, but there has to be some form of essence that acts as a community, an uh, organic community within my body, within other people's bodies, within uh, ecosystems that allow it to function intelligently with one another that sustains one another. Just like nature, if you go out into nature, every single piece of that nature, whether it's the flora or the fauna, they work together symbiotically in a way to where there is no waste. That's the thing about agriculture. There's so much waste. With permaculture, it's a way of allowing nature to do, um, to do what it naturally does best. It uses the waste of another system as fuel for its own system. So that's, uh, that's a very interesting thing about nature is there's no waste whatsoever. Everything is, has its own purpose. It has a use. It has a cause. There's no need for industrial runoff or industrial waste because if it's done properly, nature knows how to use every single bit and piece of its own nature to fuel itself as a self-contained ecosystem. And that's really kind of the basis of the Hangs Man Project. It's to really show that Every single part of our society, every, every part of our lives right now is necessary for us to understand something very important. You know, we can learn so much from the current corrupt system. What can we learn from a corrupt governing system or a uh, corrupt financial or political or uh, economic or social system? What can we learn from that? I'm not always looking at the, uh, at the problems of these things. I, you know, I would, you know, much prefer look at the, uh, the bright side of it. What can we learn? What beautiful opportunity are we being presented by having all of this corruption? Maybe now we can finally see what we're doing to ourselves on the inside, what kind of lives we're living, the type of moral and ethical depravity that a lot of us are living in, you know, in society today with this fear-based, um, you know, scarcity-based uh, economy and society that we have. Right. So what, what can we learn from this? Instead of just looking at it as, oh, it's evil, you know, government, ooh, evil, you know, like, uh, shit, everything that's going on, the economic or the financial side is evil. I don't want to look at that anymore. No, we should be looking at that more. And, and instead of looking at it as completely evil and something we need to remove ourselves from, we need to understand how this is something that's gone astray from nature. Because just as nature, nature, in a sense, doesn't, if you go into a natural ecosystem, it doesn't turn anything away. It learns how to adapt to its environment. You know, they, they've actually found that um, mycelium, forms of fungus, can be used to naturally clean oil-spilled water um, or oil-contaminated uh, uh, water. Mycelium and different types of fungus can actually be uh, used, and it, it's one of the, the quickest adapting uh, organisms out there. It doesn't 
try and migrate away from problems, it, it learns how to adapt to these things that we consider to be problems. To, to it, it just, it, it is what it is. There's no such thing as a problem or this, that, and the other. It is what it is. It learns how to thrive in, its own, in a scenario that it's uh, being presented with. And in many ways, I think that's a great testament to what we could be doing as, um, as a community, as a global community, is looking at these problems that we're facing not as a way of how do we destroy this system, how do we completely you know, eradicate what we have today. Well, first, let's comprehend it. Before we do anything, just like, in, you know, like if we want to fix certain problems, first we want to understand the problem because who know, God knows what we're going to be fixing if we don't understand it. I mean, I'm not going to bring my car to be worked on by somebody that absolutely has no idea about cars. I want somebody that understands cars to fix the car if there's a problem with it. So the thing is, is first, maybe we should try and see the world for what it truly is before we try and, uh, and just immediately start fixing it. And that can be done simultaneously with action. But as long as that action is countered, uh, or no, I'm sorry, not countered, but accompanied with a true understanding and a development of ourselves as individuals. Because a society, uh, I'm sorry, a, a community and culture is based upon, um, it's really just a reflection of the individual. And if there are common uh, aggregates or common uh, flaws within an individual, then that's going to be reflected eventually within the whole society. So that is why my work um, really, really tries to get, you know, as close as it can to the individual. I try to hit very close to home with people. You know, I'm glad that I went ahead and made sure that I extended this interview because normally I set aside an hour for them. But uh, as you said, you, you know, you, you do talk. And then yeah. <laughs> so I do the same thing, too. I mean, I think you and I could be doing this until the wee hours of the morning. Um, now, there were a couple things I wanted to get out because I do want to focus on two more things, and I wanted to get into that philosophical conversation about freedom that I mm -hmm. actually was hoping to devote an hour to, but it's obvious that's not going to happen. Um, now, the uh, first thing I wanted to do before I even forget is, can you tell people a little bit about your band and where they can check it out? Uh, yeah. Um, basically, the, the band name is Hierosonic, and that's H-I-E-R-O-S-O-N-I-C. Um, uh, trying to think. The um, the website is hyrosoniconline.com. There's also myspace.com backslash hyrosonic, and we also have a, a Facebook page. Um, but we we're actually going to be um, touring coming up towards the end of this uh, the end of this year. Uh, we're, we're recording quite a bit more material right now, uh, material right now, and then we'll be uh, touring in support of that. Um, but as of right now, the tour is really just going to be um, United States-based. We're not going uh, international yet. Um, however, we hope to, by next year, um, be out in, uh, in Australia. There's a couple amazing bands, very aware bands, out in Australia. One being, uh, uh, I'll give them a plug real quick, COG. It's uh, C-O-G. And um, they... Um, very aware individuals, very into, uh, actually they, on their MySpace page, they have the, um, uh, the Zeitgeist film. They're promoting, like, the Zeitgeist films on their page. So they're, they're very into this type of movement, and that's, that's one way that I actually got hooked up with these individuals. Um, but 
as for the band, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. We're doing we're doing a lot in support of uh, the Hanged Man project, and we're trying to figure out how we, as a band, being in a part of a um, uh, an industry that is is highly contrived and highly controlled, how we can use that uh, for alternative means. Now. Um what kind of music would you describe yourself as, just so my listeners know what they're what they're getting into when they go check it out? I mean, you know, obviously there's genres, and I don't want to constrain you, but just to give yeah. you an idea of you know, what it is, that kind of music you're playing. Um, yeah, basically it's, uh, it's a little difficult to explain. The best way, um, typically when I just, uh, when people ask me what genre it falls into, I just say um, rock. Uh, with tribal and tribal and electronic influences, we've been compared to bands like Muse. Um, trying to think of some of the other ones, um, all the way from Muse to Queens of the Stone Age to Rage Against the Machine, some Dandy Warhols, um, Tool, uh, Radioheadish type bands. So I mean, it, it's it's all over the board, really. Um, I mean, I, I really wish, uh, if, if anyone's interested, I could email them a couple free MP3s because um, we're, we're definitely doing a lot, uh, trying to do a lot outside of the, uh, the the monetary system, being able to give some of the songs out for free um, to support it that way. But um, that's, that's pretty much the best way I could actually explain it is really just by giving some other bands that we've been compared to. But, I, again, yeah, I, I hate really... Applying well, that's, that's, that's basically what it is, but yeah, I know what you mean. I, I'm a musician myself, and I, I right. mix with that kind of stuff. I just generally you kind of you, you can pick on your influences to give people a notion. Right. I mean, you know, if somebody wanted to listen to Guns N' Roses, I'd say they should probably check out Led Zeppelin. You know, yeah. of other. But anyway, um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that just from musician to musician to make sure you had a chance to, to plug that. Yeah. Um, now. Uh, one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask about, because this is actually a question that was brought up when I, I told people that I was going to do, they, they were curious, what kind of physical actions were you talking about with the Hangman Project? Were you talking about marches, protests? Uh, I mean, or is it just, is this something you kind of want the individual people within your group to, to, to start, and then you go along with it? I know you said you would try to attend events and stuff. Right. Um, it's, it's actually both, um, in a sense. Uh, the way I can say it is, there are a lot of things that I'm allowing for other people to kind of take the reins on. Um, and I, I can't really say I'm allowing it because it's one of those things that immediately once I, I created this project and I launched it, it immediately wasn't mine anymore. But I am an individual that's, um, in a sense, a part of it, if you could ever be a part of um, you know, this project. I, I call it a tool. It's kind of you can't belong to a hammer and a nail. You can use a hammer and a nail to build something or to destroy if that's your thing. But um, really, um, the actions that I was kind of speaking about in that film were more or less um, pretty much anything that people could could, uh, really use, any type of physical action, whether it be a march or whether it be an event that they would like to uh, put up or a festival or um, a a protest in some way. And actually, it sounds... uh, kind of off base and off topic, but I don't know if you've ever seen um, Improv Anywhere. It's these um, videos on YouTube where they, uh, at Grand Central Station, they kind of, um, they, they took 207 people 
and they had them walking through Grand Central Station, and at the exact same time, they all just froze in place and um, for five minutes. And people were freaking out. They had no idea what was going on. And, and um, people on their cell phones trying to figure out whether these, there was, like, an epidemic going on just because people <laughs> froze in place. And people are actually taking that idea. And um, I, I personally, I don't quite understand how they're using this in a way, whether it be, like, a statement of some sort um, for the Hangman Project. But I'm also, I'm like, I think, it's, I think it's awesome. I think it's, a, you know, very... Uh, neat artistic um, experiment in a sense, and people are doing that for the Hangman Project. They're they're staging. Um, actually, I probably shouldn't get into some of the things that people told me they're doing because um, I don't know if it's incriminating or not. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's not like harming anybody or anything like that, but it's it's stupid laws that would eventually um, make it incriminating. So I'll, I'll leave some of it out. Um, but a lot of the things that I'm doing and going to festivals, uh, different events, um, doesn't matter where it is, uh, people who are, are setting up, like, screenings of my films and other films, uh, I'll, I'll come, I'll, I'll speak uh, if they're having, like, I was out in Sonora, California not too long ago, actually right before I went out to Australia, because they were having a benefit for, um, well, it, was, it was partially for the oil spill thing, but they, um, they were also teaching a lot about permaculture, and different types of gardening and growing food and stuff like that. And that was um, that was another one of the, the sparks that kind of got me into that. But attending these events, meeting people face-to-face, building community, helping build these, uh, like, daily or weekly meetup groups that people are kind of uh, building in, in several countries right now, uh, like every continent and I think over, I don't know, I mean, there's, maybe over 100-something uh, countries so far that have gotten people that, that are um, starting up groups right now. And this is just since July 4th. So hopefully they, you know, they kind of maintain what they, what they said they, they were going to be building, which is pretty much just community in their local area. For one, they're trying to support local economy, uh, trying to keep buying food local, trying to uh, keep local business owners in uh, – you know, in business, trying to work not with corporatized healthcare and and, uh, and allopathic medicine, but holistic preventative medicine, things like that. Educating people, going around to different events, and and showing these different means of being able to be a self-sustaining, self-regulating individual. Because once we've taken care of those problems that that um, that inhibit us from being able to help ourselves then we have that time to be able to help our neighbor. And who knows what our neighbors might be able to do to help us, and that's the basis of community. So those actions, there, there are quite a few that are right along the lines of activism, and some of those are the ones that uh, you know, I'm not going to get into. Some of them are, are really just people uh, doing marches. Um, some of them just doing protests uh, in front of uh, specific Capitol buildings, um, I really don't get too involved with uh, with the political side of things, even though it does intrigue me. Um, really, what I try and do is, I, I mean, my biggest uh, obstacle right now is showing people that I'm not um, a leader of a group and that my opinion and my, uh, my word means just as much but no more than any other individual. 
and I'm not saying any other individual that belongs to the Hangman Project because really the Hangman Project is is uh, is humanity wide. Its its attempt is to be humanity wide. So that's my biggest attempt and my biggest goal right now is to show that those who either love or hate my work, which there's a lot of both. <laughs> so I mean, uh, those yeah, exactly. And really, it's just to show that. Um, there, there are concerns. All of us have concerns and all of us want to change things in some way, shape, or form. I would just encourage people to know themselves a little bit more. And it sounds so simple and it sounds so rudimentary. And sometimes some people complain about the fact that they believe that's not doing anything. It's pointless. It's useless. But to me, that's the basis of all change. Changing yourself is the foundation upon which all change in the world happens. So, I mean, it sounds so simple, but try it one day. It's difficult. I mean, the, the most difficult form of transition, transformation, and change is that which we have to do within ourselves. And that's why I get into esoteric uh, subjects, because a lot of people misunderstand what esoteric actually means or occult actually means. And really, it's just that inner world. It's those things that you really can't sum up in words. You know, those experiences like, you know, I could, I could say to you, um, or any individual, I could say, um, I think it was in the movie Contact, Matthew McConaughey was saying to, um, to uh, what's her name, the actress, he was like, uh, do you love your father? And she was just like, yeah. And he, he said, okay, prove it. And that, you know, just that, you know, like, be, you, can, you can verbalize it any way you want, but it's like explaining uh, the taste of salt to, uh, you know, to somebody who's never tasted salt. Or it's like explaining the color red to a blind person who's never seen color before. In a way, that's esoteric. It's those things that you know, you know it exists. You know emotions exist. You know thoughts exist. But can you explain what a thought is? Can you explain where emotions and can you explain where consciousness actually exists? You know, in some ways, in some way, uh, maybe possibly you can, but it's it's one of those intangible things, and that's where my work gets into the esoteric. And that's why philosophy is so uh, incredible to me. I used to hate philosophy, but it's, it's those conundrums that you find yourself, you're not able to find an answer. And me, being an intellectual, I always try and find an answer to certain things, and that's one thing that I always had to try and get over, was maybe there, maybe my problem is coming to solutions or coming to answers far too quickly. Maybe I didn't really look at the situation the way it really was, and I just landed upon a solution that was all right at the time. And then tomorrow, something else comes up that completely contradicts it. So now I have to find a way to fit that into my, uh, into my understanding. And so let's say if I don't want to give up on the false association I had yesterday, now I have to find an equally ridiculous way to explain this new association. And in many ways, that's the way religious establishments have gone about trying to explain their religions to people. So in, in a way, that's really all the, the whole purpose of the Hank Man Project is just to be able to challenge yourself as an individual. Because if you want to change, try first changing yourself. Try it for a day, you know, I mean, and truly understand what true change is. Because it's not one of those things that you're like, yeah, you know, I think things are changing. I guess, you know, I guess it's kind of, you know, things are transforming in my life. When you're actually experiencing a real transformation, a paradigm shift in your life, it is abundantly clear. 
you don't have to question it whatsoever. So that's that's all I encourage people to do. And really, the Hangman Project, uh, hangmanproject.com, that website, is to be used as a tool. The, the reason why I have the forums and the reason why I have everything else on there, and it's going to be a lot more interactive in the, in the months to come, the reason why I have that there is for people to use as a community in some way, shape, or form, like the forums, to build a community online in some way, but, you know, to try and encourage them to get out face-to-face and to meet the people in their local neighborhoods. Now, um, it's, a, it's actually a, one of the major aspects, something I really wanted to talk to you about that really clicked in my head in that video, and it almost seems like I, I'm actually tempted to ask you if um, you're available at some point at another time this week to discuss it, because it almost seems like it would need to be a show all on its own, but it's a discussion about uh, mental slavery and how people don't really realize that they're, they're not free um, and to really get into the nitty-gritty about, uh, for example, how the colonists even were still in a slave's mentality. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of work, um, currently anyway, getting to the, you know, the social nuances and the, the little idiosyncrasies that people are not necessarily aware of about how they're, they're really, really controlled by a hierarchy system. Even in the smallest group of people, you, know, you could be sitting at a, a dinner table having a conversation about nothing, and some alpha male or alpha female, multiple mm. genders, will take control, and then the pecking order gets established, and you know whose jokes are funny and whose are not gets established, and <laughs> who's allowed to talk and who isn't gets established, and you know that's just on the, the small the small scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then also uh, just the fact that I you know people don't ever think about. This is something that, for example, when I have to sell the Venus Project, and I say sell just to say it as a right, right. communicating the Venus Project to libertarians, they're so conditioned to believe that their freedom is through a free enterprise system and their ability to make and use money um, that when I tell them, you know, when I say to them, well, why don't you instead just focus on getting off the grid and producing everything for yourself and being completely self-sufficient, you know, it's, it takes them a while. Because they're actually really averted to anything that says that free market capitalism is not the way. But right. eventually, they start to go, oh, well, I guess I guess that would be all right, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting how, how totally uh, enslaved people's minds are. Um, now, it's... Now, go ahead and at least when, when you're talking about this, I presume we're talking about a lot of things. First of all, we're talking about, you know, effects of environment. Um, like, you know, I, I, I said about this, talking about this earlier, actually, is that I've been doing a self-study where I've been going back and watching all the films that I watched when I was a kid to get an idea about, what, you know, where my personality came from. And you find out a lot of stuff about yourself. Like, I figured out why I'm attracted to certain types of girls through this. I'm, I figured out where some of my values came from. You know, so there's that aspect of it. And it, it's not to say that, you can't become free of these things because you can, but it doesn't happen until you realize that you are under the influence of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just like freeing yourself from the mainstream media, um, I turned off, like, I don't have a television that plays, uh, like, I have my TV hooked up to my computer, and I don't, I don't ever, I'm never exposed to, for example, uh, advertising, ever. And I don't allow my children to be exposed to it either. And mm-hmm. it has changed my mentality so much you know, and these are examples of things that you do to free yourself, at least from my own personal work. Now, um, I presume, obviously, you agree with this stuff because we talked about it earlier. Now, 
Um, what do you mean specifically when you're saying that we need to be really free, you know, on a mental level that goes beyond anything about what rights I supposedly have? That doesn't mean anything if I don't understand, you know, the full spectrum of freedom and goes far beyond just the matter of what I'm allowed to do in so much as what am I willing to do? What am I willing to allow myself to do, to myself to do, beyond just the issue of what somebody tells me I can do? Right. Um, basically, uh, what I get into this, in this is um, I, I try to use a lot of um, examples that people can somewhat relate to. Um, let's say to understand how where freedom and slavery, for that matter, where it actually exists. Let's say that uh, we were to try and run away from our problems and go to another country. Say, say that we're dealing with a certain type of relationship problem, and we, you know, now let's say a female, for instance, is going from, you know, grew up in an uh, abusive house, was abused by her father, and then uh, gets into relationship after relationship after relationship of abusive men. And every single time is just wondering, like, what is it? Maybe it's just people around this area. I have no idea, like, why do I keep attracting these people that uh, that abuse me in a certain way? And then let's say that uh, she tries to run away from the problems and go into, uh, you know, say, another country where she believes that people would be different. And And I've actually seen these scenarios before where people end up, regardless of where they go, they encounter the same problems over and over and over and over again. And slight changes do happen because of their change of environment. But what's understood by that is that we subconsciously are con like we are consistently uh, searching to process this information that's not being processed in our subconscious. Because basically anything that is pushed into our subconscious, all this content, are things that we are not processing in a way. It's, uh, it, it's repressed material. It's because we have not consciously processed it because we don't have the ability uh, or the capacity to truly process those emotions or those problems. So, in a sense, the subconscious is consistently trying to become, uh, trying to allow for consciousness to be aware of all of this content that is there. And Wilhelm Reich called it armor. Uh, and, and many people just, they call it, uh, like defense mechanisms, things like that. But really, the reason why consistently we are faced with the same problems over and over and over again, and it seems to be, um, plaguing us throughout our entire lives, is because we have not truly understood this, uh, subconscious content. We haven't under, uh, understood the depth to which we are a conscious, psychological, emotional being. We understand the physical side, but we don't necessarily, with our, uh, with our culture and our, our, um, the way we're conditioned today, we're not conditioned or we're not uh, trained or taught or educated on how to deal with emotional problems. We're, we're caught in this uh, competition-based society to where, you know, we, we try and tell people that, oh, you know, it's all right if you lose, but, you know, what's being said between the lines is not, you know, not with words, but with the reward program and with uh, uh, money and sponsorship and the way sports is heralded, we're being shown that a winner is valuable and a loser is not. So it's, it's kind of 
what I'm basically getting at with all of this is uh, the the way that we're conditioned in some way, shape, or form, if we don't understand this subconscious content, then we are going to keep being confronted with it over and over and over again because just like anything else in nature that always seeks balance, because that's really what nature is. It's, it's a balancing act. It's constantly seeking balance. We are an organism that is constantly seeking balance, and all of this subconscious, unprocessed material that we have in our subconscious is consistently trying to become illuminated. So it's presenting itself. Subconsciously, we act, uh, and, and this, you know, I get into this in my film, in Chimatica, 95% of everything we do is, is subconscious. It's unconscious uh, behavior, and only 3 to 5% of what we do we're truly aware of because everything else is a program. So basically, when we go through our lives, we're reacting to things without understanding where that reaction even came from. And you were talking about going back and looking at some of the, uh, the cartoons, the movies, and some of the things that you grew up on and trying to understand how it may have conditioned you to who you are today. That's the thing. There are so many tiny little aggregates and little pieces of the puzzle that we could put together. But if we were to spend some actual time and investigate why we allow ourselves, why we comply with certain situations that add to our slavery, then we'll truly understand where slavery exists, where freedom exists. And that's, I mean, uh, again, getting into what I said in the Hanged Man Project uh, address that I, um, that little 10-minute video I put up, was basically there was no inner revolution to man meant, uh, in the American Revolution. There was a physical revolution. There were a lot of guns. There was a lot of uh, bloodshed. And there was a lot of uh, land and, and property and things being transferred in different hands. But really, ultimately, what happened within the people? Was there truly a transformation from, uh, from slavery into freedom? Did, did we really win freedom through that whole American Revolution, did we win our freedom? No, we didn't because nothing truly changed within the hearts and minds of men at that point. We were still consciously children, and we didn't realize it as at that point. So as soon as the guns were down, as soon as all the blood was, uh, was drawn and all of the, you know, basically all of the casualties were buried and life got back to normal as of that point, everybody sighed a sigh of relief, and they were like, all right, now we can get back to exactly the way we lived before. Just now we, can, you know, we, we, don't have, we don't have to pay taxes to the king. We don't have to do this, that, and the other. But that's not where uh, freedom and slavery exists. It adds something to that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, like you, we were addicted. It's the same thing you pointed out, that we're addicted to being led. And, like, as an example, you back to the revolution, you know, they, there were people who had suggested that George Washington should become the king of the colonies because they were so conditioned in that, that reality that that's how things functioned, that that didn't even occur to them that they needed to rise out of that. You know, it took George Washington turning and looking at him and going, I'm not going to do that. But why did we just fight this war? Are you guys crazy? Did you hear anything we said? Right. You know, is that kind of an example of what you mean? Absolutely. I mean, uh, think about it this way. I mean, you, you actually said it perfectly with um, being addicted uh, uh, yeah, the addiction to being led. And what that shows to me is that culturally, what, the, what people were experiencing on the inside was a physical liberation, but there was no 
Um, there was no growing up. There was no move from that inner childhood state where they had a parent. They were used to having a parent being King George or, or you know, uh, any form of government, any form of tyranny. They were comfortable with that because in many ways that's how, that's how it really gets to the point where um, nothing is truly ever being changed because people are comfortable with their slavery in a sense. Why? You know, I hear so many people bitching and complaining about their way of life, but they're not going to do anything about it. They don't get up and actually do anything to change their lives. Why? Because they're not really bitching and complaining because they want change. They're bitching and complaining because they are used to bitching and complaining, because that is a release. That is a vent for some of those, um, that, that inner content that they don't know how to process anymore. So really, children want to have parents until they get to the point to where they know how to take care of themselves. So we, at that point, and you can just look at history as an example of this, at that point, um, us yeah, in, in the United States, we weren't ready to be self-governing on the inside. So we naturally allowed, uh, and now we have 300 million people to prove it, we naturally allowed for a, another system to be set up in place that mirrors the exact same way that the uh, tyrannical system was in uh, in Great Britain, in, that's, in yeah, the UK. That's very, very true. Um, Senator Mike Gravel had me study a lot of stuff about that because I, you know, being caught up in the patriot movement and all that, I was really finding myself idolizing the founding fathers, and, you know, then he really pulled the wool over off of my eyes, so to speak, and he, for example, explained why direct democracy is not included in the Constitution because that's how the colonies used to rule themselves, but because the aristocracy of the colonies, which is, to make no mistake, the majority of the founding fathers were all right. people, um, wanted, wanted it gone because they couldn't ratify the Constitution that way if it had slavery in it, because some of the states objected to slavery, because there were a lot of Quakers. Um, and so they just got rid of the ability of the, of the common man to vote on things like that and created the delegate system, which then turned into the congressional system, which, of course, is then just uh, completely owned and operated by the rich people. So it is just a, it's a whole new aristocracy. And, and mm -hmm. you think of it as, you know, oh, well, we're free. You know, and you listen to these people, too. They'll tell you stuff like, you know, it's better that you, you know, democracy is bad. It's, it's, it's two wolves and a sheep, you know, deciding what's for dinner. You know, so let's just decide who we're going to let rule us instead. You're voting them into office. Yeah. In a yeah. democratic republic, because that's better. Um, <laughs> you know, a republic that we'll be sure to select by making sure that you only hear about the candidates that we like, um, and we make sure that we get rid of any candidates that we don't like. You know, that's that's the system. I don't think you know, it, it, it's not feudalism, but it is essentially feudalism, because it's the same families, the same, you know, you can't get into the White House and let, you know, if you're poor, mm -hmm. um, you know, or at least find some way to ingratiate yourself on those who are rich. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. It, it's a total sham, and that's, it's, it's sad because I watch this, like, a lot of the people in the Ron Paul movement in particular just revere that, and they don't really understand the underlying flaws in what it is that they're being taught. There's another thing that, you know, Mike did when he, you know, when he exposed me to that was I, I really woke up to the fact that the, the patriotism and the, the blind faith that I had in it was a total waste of my time and energy. Um, and it, it also, it, it really limited me, because even my favorite of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, owned more slaves than any of the other founding fathers. Right. 
Yeah, and many much of that is is also a product of the times, you know, and it's it's kind of what they're comfortable with, you know. So it's just like as um, as history moves along, and as people as a whole, I mean, the the, the whole of humanity um, really moves along and it evolves in certain ways. What um, what we really see is the fact that uh, even these heralded patriarchs uh, from the past. Um, are even even they are a product of their time, and it's those very few that seemed uh, that were pretty much burned at the stake, the ones that were completely misunderstood in their times, um, to be those revolutionary minds that really changed things. Unfortunately, uh, and and again, this is my personal belief, but true revolution within us is something that everybody is going, if, if you are truly facing it, it's, it's one of those processes that feels um, like a death and a rebirth. So there, there will be tremendous amounts of pain in some way, shape, or form because it's a transformation. It's, it's the allowing the old you to die in some way, shape, or form and to build a, or, or uh, birth a new you. And these are things, like, all. the reason why I get into the ego and the complexities of the ego is because we're addicted to the ego. We're addicted to our identity. We allow ourselves to establish our identity based upon uh, how much we have in the bank, um, who we associate ourselves with, how good-looking we are, how uh, tall we are, how fast we can run, um, uh, our job, our status, anything, like the car that we drive, the house that we live in, um, you know, how many languages we speak. It's, it's one of these things we associate the value of our own lives based upon these things. Um, I, and I've said in many, many interviews that it is unfortunate, not that people don't view everybody else and everybody else in the world as beautiful, but the fact that people don't view themselves as beautiful until they have a certain amount or a certain type of this or that. Like, we, like, honestly... Name any other natural occurring organism that even worries itself with uh, the type of beauty and the type of um, status and the type of things that we worry ourselves with. And yes, we are more complex than, um, in in many ways, we are more complex than uh, many, you know, obviously the flora and the fauna. We're more complex in certain ways, but we have these certain types of defects within us that allows us to place value on things that literally they have no more value than, than that which we allow it to have, such as money. You know, money is one of those things. Beauty is one of those things. And again, getting back to what I was saying, we establish our value based upon these egos. So it is a painful process to get rid of these egos, to allow ourselves to feel what we truly are on the inside, which is not a name, it's not a label, it's not a title, it's not an association, it's not a job, it's not an amount of money. It's, it's, it's essence. That's, it's, it's very, very simple. Again, like I was saying, it's, you know, like it's not about attaining a bunch of shit, it's about clearing away a bunch of things and getting back to that simple question. You know, what makes life grow? Hey, um, we're down to the last 90 seconds of the live broadcast. I believe it'll allow us to continue to go on beyond that. If not, um, it's been great having you on the show. Please take a moment to uh, plug your website. Okay, yeah. Um, www.talismanicidols.org. That's T-A-L-I-S-M-A-N-I-C-I-D-O-L-S.org. And 
manproject.com. Those are the two websites uh, that I have, and you can contact me at any time. I try to, I try, I try to get back to absolutely everybody. Excellent. I appreciate that. Um, in the event that uh, it does let us stay on, because sometimes it does, uh, I'd like to continue our conversation a little bit. And if not, I'd like to talk to you a little bit off the air. Thank you for tuning in uh, to V Radio. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. A minus, a minus between the letter V and the word radio. There you can listen to my archives of other great programming just like this. I am looking for donations for next month. Uh, we're almost, we got about a little almost halfway there. And um, I really appreciate all of your support. Thanks again for coming on. Um, and with any luck, we'll be able to continue into the archive part of the broadcast. And uh, in any case, um, let me see. Oh, we got a comment in the chat room. Oh, somebody said thank you. <laughs> see what happens when this closes up. Okay. Okay. Well, it looks like it's going to let us stay on. <laughs> awesome. Go ahead and finish what you were saying. Um, I talked so much. Where was I? Um, I know I was talking about the egos at that point. Oh, yeah, okay. So basically just to, to kind of wrap up what I was saying was that, you know, th- this process of actual transformation can be very painful for each individual because you literally are letting go of all these associations that we once had with who we thought we were. And that's um, that's the thing. What I see as being these ideas of revolution, these ideas of change, uh, a lot of the times it's not um, – because people like to have a leader for one, for one reason. They, you know, they can blame the leader if things don't work out. And that's, uh, that's one reason why people love being led. I'm not saying that's the end all be all, and that's the only reason why, but that's one reason why people love being led, because they have no responsibility. They don't have to take any responsibility for anything. So if, if they have gripes, they can always say, oh, it's because of the government, you know, or it's because of Obama, or it's because of the Rothschilds, or it's because of, you know, the Freemasons, and, you know, there, there's always something that they could blame on somebody else. They don't have to take personal responsibility for it. Once we take personal responsibility for everything, then we, it, it's a very humbling experience, um, where, and it, it's also very painful, because then we have, to, uh, we, we have to come face-to-face with the fact that the reason why we are in the amount of um, emotional, mental uh, strife and the amount of slavery that we have is simply because of the amount that we have allowed ourselves to be slaves. And yes, that is a collective statement because we, uh, I, I often speak of dependency and independence, but there is also a third to that. That's once you move from dependency, which is a child, to uh, independence, which is an adult, one that can be self-sustaining and take care of themselves, then the next step is uh, intra-dependency, being able to work with other groups and allow uh, to help other groups along. So in a sense, that's kind of becoming a parent. That's going from a child to an adult, then to a parent where you can teach other generations or becoming a, a teacher to where you can teach other, uh, other generations or other uh, dependents to one day become independent and then, again, back to in. Intradependency. 
So right now we shouldn't demonize the fact that we're slaves because slave has a very negative connotation to that word. But the fact is we should at least understand that we are children. We should understand that it is us that we are complying with a system that is enslaving us. We are complying with a system that takes care of everything a parent would take care of uh, for a child. Think about it. Our food is corporatized. Every, you know, everything about food now is corporate. Everything about our health, which a parent would take care of a child's health, that's corporate. Everything about our protection, military, paramilitary um, forces, that's all corporatized. Everything that a parent would do for a child is completely taken care of by, um, by government. When, when you move out at the age of 18 or whenever you actually move out and you move into uh, your society, all we are doing is we're replacing our parents with government, with health care, with uh, um, the grocery stores, all these things that we depend on so we don't have to do it ourselves. And in many ways, we just really need to understand that we are the ones that put ourselves in that situation collectively. And unfortunately, it's um, – well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. Fortunately, actually, this gives us a great opportunity to actually see – in, in a, with a physical mirror to actually see what we've done with ourselves on the inside, what kind of condition we're at on the inside. So really, we should be looking at the world um, as a mirror to ourselves. We should be looking at it to study it, to understand it, to understand that the, our environment is an extension of ourselves. And the way that we are enslaved on the outside is the exact same way that we are enslaved on the inside. And that's what all of my work, my documentaries and everything gets into. And that's why I personally, you know, when I'm asked to either join forces or help or assist any other project or movement or anything like that, I always say I will do anything in my power to help anybody bar none. It doesn't matter who they are, even if they hate the Hangman Project, even if they hate freedom, even if they hate free speech, even if they hate these things. I, you know, I'm, I'm there to help and support any and all people in whatever struggle they have. And unfortunately, I'm just one person. I can't do it all myself. That's why I'm trying to build, uh, establish more communities. But at the same time, I am absolutely trying to outmode and disassemble peacefully the current corrupt, absolutely ridiculous enslaving forces that, um, that we have above us right now. Now, um, that, that's definitely all of the things you're talking about. I think are definitely part of that. I, I wonder if you know, do people. I mean, I'm sure you you perceive this, but you know, just politics in general, even in a scale, people think about politics as this exterior thing that only happens outside of themselves. You know, outside of their initial groups, they don't even think about it in their own groups. Um, and it, it, especially when it comes to things like ostracism, you know, who you're supposed to be collectively ostracizing as per the, you know, the people on top. You know, that's why when people say that, you know, it's, it's so outlandish to think that there's an elite controlling anything from the top, I, you know, you, you see it everywhere in our little social isms. You know, it's like I, I've participated in a hobby, for example, and I'm, as you can probably imagine, I'm still an iconoclast even within the group of that hobby, so I say a lot of things that make certain people uncomfortable because I, I speak the truth, and you find that that tends to make people really mad. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, and, if, and especially if there's somebody, you know, who's really popular who may not necessarily be as competent as he's, you know, portraying himself and it's causing problems, 
rather than following what the status quo would say and just continuing to kiss this guy's derriere because that's what everybody else is doing, I'll just yeah. blurt it out. I'll be like, I'm sorry, I don't really agree with what you're doing, and I don't think it's very cool. And, you know, anyway, so like I remember, for example, there was a message board um, associated with that, and there was this girl there, uh, and she was, you know, you're very prom queen type, you know, very pretty, uh, always dressing in the latest fashions, and, you know, uh, you know, in person she was very nice to me. Uh, but on this message board, she was terrible, just would say these horrible, evil things and just join in with, with all the other, you know, uh, the pack of wolves on the Internet, you know, yeah. um, many of which did not even participate in that hobby anymore. They just, they, they wanted to collectively hammer on people that were not them. And then I talked to her about it in person because I was concerned that I had done something wrong to this person and I wanted to know why she was upset. She flat out looked at me and said, oh, just ignore anything I say on the message board. And I'm just like... What? You know, and at that point, that's when I came to the realization she didn't really care about any of that stuff. She was saying all of it because that's what that collective expected of her. Mm -hmm. She was cruel to somebody she considered to be her friend because that's what that collective expected of her. Right. She went on excitedly talking to me about different things we were doing in the hobby together like nothing had ever happened. You know, and um, it doesn't bother me anymore. I mean, I, I've long since moved past that, but it, I, I see it as something that's a serious threat to mankind's development because we have that sort of stuff in a lot of, you know, different things. I mean, that's just a hobby. That's just something we do for fun. It ends up happening in science. It ends up happening in politics. It ends up happening in, you know, all kinds of domestic issues. Uh, it happens in families, you know, where there's this elephant in the room and, and the ability of people to ignore it is just amazing. Uh, one of my ex-girlfriends, for example, um, her family would take in foster um, you know, children. And one of the foster boys that they brought in actually you know, tried to rape her. And the family, rather than dealing with that, just kind of pretended it didn't happen and, you know, let, you know, and had him assigned to a different home. And then years down the line... Um, he calls because he's in the area and he wants to visit. And they go, oh, yeah, sure, come on over, you know. And, and she's just sitting there all wide-eyed going, what? You know, are you serious? You know, and, and these are all extreme examples. And I, and I right. use them because these are things that people obviously see. But there are other things that we don't see. You know, there are different things that, you know, even just in basic conversation, uh, you know, don't, don't rock the boat, uh, don't upset the apple cart. These different terms that we have for for don't actually speak the truth because for the truth is is not it's not does not fit our agenda. Um, that's how you get fired out of mainstream media jobs. You know, it's it's how you get. I mean, even in some of the alternative media, like I got thrown off the air once for playing the corporation, uh, hmm. uh, a documentary on a Freedom Network. I played this documentary and they kicked me off the air because they they were so far to the right that they they couldn't handle that I. I did anything that that made corporations look bad, um, <laughs> you know. And that's an example of um, these kinds of aspects of slavery. Is we're really enslaved to the sociological groups that we're part of, and a lot of people just kind of throw their hands up in the air and they say, "Oh well, it's always been like that. It's always going to be like that. There's nothing you can do about it." And then I, you know, I countered them. Yeah, I actually, I already told you this from some listeners, you know. I countered that, you know, when I was talking to Marcin Jakubowski from Open Source Ecology, mm -hmm. talking about the same subject, and he, you know, and I said, well, 
I would believe that if it weren't for the fact that um, if that were true, we couldn't perceive it. We would not be able to perceive that there is a problem, that it is wrong. You can have conversations with these people about these various little political things that they, that they accept. You know, but as you said, they make a decision to accept it, and they're coerced to do so. But it's like you allow people to have so much power over you. Um, it, you know, it's a public opinion. You know, being concerned what it, what the Joneses will think, you know, is this huge paralyzing factor. You know, and you have to be careful about it because you don't want to become a narcissist. I mean, if, if somebody really has a valid reason for disliking you, that's different. And you have to be very introspective and pay very close attention to yourself. But you also have to pay extremely close attention to who you allow to have access to your self-image. Who, mm-hmm. And especially the judging the the caliber of the people in question, you know, if, if I'm drinking a little bit and an alcoholic is judging me about it, obviously I'm going to laugh at him, <laughs> you know, and it, but, but other people don't do that. They get really hung up in what, what the, the rest of the group, you know, like you said, group think in your film. Yeah. What does the rest of the group think about me? And you end up agreeing to the most irrational, silly things in, you know, and it, it's amazing to me. Um, between that and the last point that I'll say before I, you know, I ask you to launch into your own thing about this is the hypocrisies that can come out of this are so silly. Um, like in that hobby, I mean, in that hobby we play a game, and there were some of the guys who were a bit more popular than others, and they could cheat like mad, and nobody would care. If somebody who's slightly outside of the social spectrum even looked like they were cheating, they were on you like a pack of rabid wolves. You know, and it's the same thing with politicians. Um, actually, there was, I'm going to leave one more point. Uh, there was an anarcho-primitivist, and I'm going to forget his name, but he gives a good lecture. One of the things that he talked about was that, have you noticed that violence and violent behavior, and not just meaning physical violence, but mental violence, is, is deemed acceptable as long as it moves down the social spectrum. It's perfectly okay for, you know, it was not, for example, let's, let's just, all 9-11 conspiracies aside, it was not acceptable for 18 men to fly two planes into our buildings and kill, uh, what was it, like 3,000 people. But yeah. it was perfectly acceptable for us to go over to their countries and kill hundreds of thousands of people who had nothing to do with it. That's considered normal. You know, you get it on the news. Uh, a cop gets shot. You know, there's, it's a big deal. You know, a police officer shoots three people. It, it's not as big a deal, you know, if it's even covered at all. Right. Um, so... Oh, that was the, and, and one other example I'll give of that, because I used to live in the inner city where we'd have shootings all the time in and around our school. And I remember going to school back when the Columbine thing happened and how a lot of my gangster friends were just laughing, like, okay, so, you know, this happens all the time here. <laughs> you know, if they, mm-hmm. they want to do a movie about that, I'll be more than happy to be, you know, because <laughs> it, it happens all the time in, in bad inner cities. But because it was going on, in, you know, a place that was considered to be suburban white America, then it was a big deal that kids were shooting each other. Yeah. Um, and the, the other ironic thing about that, that's the final, final layer, um, is that when you study about what happened, those kids were shooting people who were higher up on the social spectrum than them, you know. Yeah. And that's what frustrated them enough to push them over the edge. And, of course, they externalize that. It can't possibly be that we need to do more about how our kids relate to each other in school. We need to stop our kids from playing Mortal Kombat and Doom because that's clearly what did it. It couldn't be that, 
you know, these kids were being picked on endlessly to the point of breaking. You know, they tell you stuff like ignore bullies, but you've got to be trapped in the room with these idiots, sometimes for hours at a time, and you're just expected to ignore that, and you're supposed to be, you know, going to school. I mean, and I don't condone going around shooting people. That's not right. it. It's that the root cause of the problem was not Mortal Kombat and Doom. And the fact, the only reason that we got this huge issue about it was because of the circumstances in which it happened. Violence happens all over America, and, but we don't care about it unless it's high up on the social scale. Now, given all these things that I've just blurted out, but it seems to me you think about as fast as I do, so I'm pretty sure you kept up. Yeah. Um, you know, what would you say about those aspects of slavery, the, 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 the social um, interaction aspects of slavery, where we're just expected to let certain people talk and, you know, and, and help them ostracize people you know, who they want to keep down? Well, I mean, it's, a lot of it is extremely apparent just to just to kind of see if you take an outside approach to looking at it. So basically what I see most of is an animalistic drive for people to, uh, you know, and this is one thing that kind of gets into walking your own path, being a human thing, to walking to the beat of your own drummer, to being an individual uh, as being a human thing as opposed to an animal thing, because if you start looking at the more depraved, more destructive, more um, degenerating areas, uh, unfortunately, it being those areas that are like concrete jungles, completely devoid of actual nature, uh, where people are packed into small, um, you know, kind of grueling lifestyles, what you'll start noticing is they act quite a bit more like animals. So it's it's uh, based upon the uh, the alpha male, the the pack leader, uh, respecting that pack leader, and that's their form of organization and order. But it's a degenerating form. It's it's back to the animal kingdom, and you notice this when I mean you go downtown into any uh, like Friday night, Saturday night downtown drinking arena is. Uh, Unfortunately, and yes, this is a this is a large blanket statement, but what what are the guys typically all about? Is is drinking, um, or uh, not not the drinking part, but uh, either fighting? You know, like people will gang, uh, gang up in packs, and you'll see a lot more fights going on with with so many people. You know, downtown in these in these areas, um, and and sleeping with women. So in many ways, it's 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 like the wild. It's like animals, packing, you know, ganging up in, into little packs and little herds, which you see in the wild. Because not all species are fine with people within their own species. Not all lions, you know, uh, uh, gather up into small little uh, or gather into species-wide packs. You know, they they have their own little cliques. They have their own little niches, and. If you are on their territory, they will confront you about it. And if you are going after their female, they'll confront you about it. And they will fight over females. And you see this a lot, like downtown any area. And it's this degenerating uh, force that you notice. And it's not because people are packed into small areas. Because look at music festivals. You know, yes, you see a little bit more of that at music festivals. But look at um, different types of festivals family event festivals. It's not just the close uh, proximity of people to other people that causes this. 
it's the type of um, it's the type of energy and the type of drive within these degenerating forces. And you can link some of that to you know the drinking and the drugs and the stuff that you know all these other degenerating um, uh, substances that lower the amount of consciousness in a certain area. But um, really, yeah, looking at that is you'll notice that it's, it's like moving back into the animal kingdom with herd mentality and group think. And what you were mentioning about before was kind of, um, kind of uh, touching upon the fact that people don't really care about discovering the truth. They care about being comfortable. So if they find a version of the truth that they're comfortable with, then they're happy with that. They'll stick with that. But if they find a version of the truth that, that doesn't fit well with their current comprehension of the way reality works, then they don't like it. It doesn't matter how, how well it rings with them or how well it resonates. Um, it doesn't matter how much truth it actually holds. It matters how comfortable it makes them feel. And uh, in a lot of the ways, that's the type of society that we see today. You'll see people within the scientific realm that absolutely, because of their, their standpoint, because of the standpoint that they have kind of held for so long, they refuse to believe anything beyond the scope of their science. You see the exact opposite, you know, with um, religions of people that they, they refuse to believe um, anything beyond the scope of their religion. And unfortunately, in many ways, they're used dogmatically in the same exact way. You, you, when you see um, religion and science, you see people saying, oh, well, everything I can't explain, God did it. Or God's, you know, and, and you know, God's well above us, so, you know, we can't understand it. So that's, that's my cop-out, that's my excuse to everything. And it's almost the same with science. Is saying, well, you know, science can explain everything. And for everything that it can't explain, eventually, hopefully, one day it will. And that's not to say that either of them are, uh, either of those are untrue statements. It's the fact that people are comfortable within that niche, within that ego that they set up for themselves. I am a scientist. I believe in this. And anything that rattles my cage, I, uh, I get a little uncomfortable with. So I'll defend these, um, these scenarios. I'll defend these beliefs these concepts, these perceptions that I've had throughout my entire life, not because they're true, not because I actually believe in the validity of them, but it's because I have built my life around it. And you know that Stevie Nicks song, um, I've Been Afraid of Changing Because I've Built My Life Around You, mm-hmm. that, that landslide? That's basically the, the anthem of uh, the entire world today, if you, if you look at it. People have built their lives around their beliefs. No wonder they're so attached to them. No wonder they're so afraid to change. They're so afraid to give up what they've had in their lives for so long because that's all they know. They don't know anything else. They don't know any better. They've built their lives around A, religion, or B, science, or a mixture of the two. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to fall into those categories, but they've built their lives around placing value on certain things and placing less value on other things. And they, you know, in, in a sense, because I'm, I'm included in this, you know, I'm human, I tend to talk the talk a lot, but then I realize I'll catch myself in these little contradictions in my own work, in my own life. So it's, it's very, very, very difficult some ways to constantly be on point and be observant 
and uh, be conscious of what we're doing from moment to moment. But in a sense, if you think about it, those individuals that seem like they're outcasts and they're, they're, uh, they're loners, they're completely all on their own, this goes all the way back to those primal archetypes in, uh, in mythology. The travelers, the wanderers, the, the, um, the nomads, the, 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 the lone heroes that have to embark upon this uh, huge journey alone. They can't bring anybody else with them. It's something they have to do alone. And in many ways, that journey, because they, they come up against some of the greatest forces, like David and Goliath, this little tiny uh, pipsqueak armed with a, a, um, a slingshot going up this, uh, against this huge armored uh, leviathan almost, this huge monster, and having to bring down these, these massive forces in ways that they have no idea how they're, how they're going to do it, and they're alone on this journey. Along their way, they're coming up against these what seem to be unstoppable forces. Think about that allegorically in our lives. For us to be truly who we want to be, for us to be individuals, for us to not have to be within groupthink and herd mentality, for us to walk to our own rhythm, people ostracize us for doing that because we're individuals, because we're uh, seeking truth not seeking comfort, because we're seeking for these, these um, intangible things, the Holy Grail, we're questing for these things that, um, that nobody else is really questing after. We go, we go on it alone because it's an esoteric battle in some way, shape, or form. It's a spiritual battle. It's a conscious battle. It's things that we can't bring other people in to save us because it's these, this inner transformation we have to go at. So if you look at these, um, a lot of these myths and a lot of these uh, spiritual allegories, they're talking about these patriarchs, these heroes that they had, they started somewhere and they had to embark upon a journey. And you see the same thing in Star Wars and, and uh, the Matrix and all these other very archetypal stories. Is this, this journey that this individual has to go through to eventually become the uh, the chosen one or the one that uh, become the the thing, that essence, that entity that it was supposed to be from the beginning. So, in many ways, that's uh, my spiel on uh, pretty much what we're talking about with uh, freedom and slavery in a social sense. The reason why we're ostracized from the, social, from the social strata and the structures that we see around us in many ways is because it is a very human trait to walk alone to be an individual, to walk to our own uh, tune, to our own rhythm, to be individuals that animals could not be because in their nature they gather in packs, they gather in groups and herds. That is innately what they do. And it's, it's one of those things where um, it's kind of what the, I think it's the centaur, the, um, the symbol for Sagittarius is the half man, half beast, half stallion, where it is, in a sense, in this, um, in this phase of metamorphosis, this transformation between beast and human. So it's trying to walk its own path. And it's very, you know, you can look at the Epic of Gilgamesh and you look at a lot of uh, other uh, myths, and it, they, they all resemble the same story, the same archetypal story that we all kind of reach within ourselves. Now, um this has been a, a phenomenal conversation and I, I really appreciate you staying on as long as you yeah. um, taking all this time out of your night. Um, but uh, 
I, I definitely, I think everything we've been talking about here is great, and I, I do see that there is kind of a, a herd mentality coming out of it. But, you know, as, but I do believe that we as humans can rise above it. And one of the things that I've seen, like in my own leadership style, because, um, you know, in the hobby that we do, we, you know, we do mock combats and stuff like that using a specific system. Mm-hmm. And I end up bringing in all these people that other people have rejected, and then we have a really uh, consensus-based decision-making process. And I notice that's another thing that really threatens the, the really base, lowbrow, alpha male types is that when they see somebody doing that, you know, uh, just destroying their, their little hierarchy system, because yeah, that's basically what we would do. I mean, when I'm in, in the quote-unquote leadership position, I end up just kind of taking the position of a chairman. Like, I, you know, chair the meeting, then we all sit down, and I make sure everybody gets a chance to talk. You know, if I know that somebody's a bit, you know, more mild, you know, personality than others, then I'll encourage them to talk. If somebody starts to say something and gets interrupted and gets cut off, I remember it. I go back to that person and say, oh, and you wanted to say something too. You know, these are the kinds of things that I empower people to come out of their shell and to talk also but as individuals and also as part of the larger group. Um, you know, it's like I really would prefer not to have to be a leader at all, but I found that there are so many incompetent people who end up in charge. Um, that, and that was the other thing that I, I noticed was that a lot of people get um, promoted based on the fact that they are not a threat to the people in charge. If you're too smart or too competent, that's actually a great way to make sure that you're always passed over for promotion, you know, in one way or another, or that they see you as a threat, or they may even try to destroy you altogether. I remember um, you were talking about great leaders of the past that, you know, were not really understood by their people who were freedom fighters. And I remember thinking about the, the strange parallels between Crazy Horse of the Sioux, and William Wallace of the Scottish. They, they were both, like, kind of from common birth in their perspective cultures. They were both really good at what they were doing, um, and they were both, you know, good military leaders and all that. And they both inevitably were killed by the nobility of their own people, um, or the equivalent of it anyway among Native Americans. Uh, Crazy Horse was killed by Natives. Uh, William Wallace wasn't directly killed by the Scottish nobles, but they're the ones who gave him up. Right. Um, you know, and it, it's amazing that, you know, the, the, the group think the herd mentality can even go so far and so backwards as to do something as stupid as, you know, get rid of the guy who's doing what's best for your entire, you know, your, your people, um, because you're more concerned about the fact that he stepped outside of your social norm and made you look bad. You know, mm-hmm. that's, you know, there's so much that, like, you know, in the Japanese culture, I remember uh, one of the things, um, I'm trying to remember what it was called, it was like Rising Sun or Vanishing Sun or something like that. It was uh, Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. And um, Sean Connery was his mentor, you know, in Japanese thinking. And Yeah, the Rising Sun, I yeah, think it was. He always had to lose in golf to this Japanese mafia guy because mm-hmm. he's not allowed to, you know, make him, you know, lose face. You know, I just... That, that's the kind of stuff that, that I think that, you know, it's one of the reasons why there are a lot of people, for example, who will engage in very destructive behavior during conversation, and you let the guy do it because you don't want to take away his freedom of speech, but at the same time, that means that there's a whole host of people who can't talk at all because either the guy's hogging the mic, so to speak, or he's so um, intimidating or even brutal to people who speak out of turn that they can't talk at all. You know, but you don't want to ban the guy, right? You don't want to suspend his rights of, you know, being able to talk. 
even though he's doing that to everybody in the room, he's preventing everybody else from exchanging. Um, and that's between that and um, there's one other point that I think goes on in these little groups that doesn't have to happen uh, is that um, through the through the ostracism method, you know, we we end up really squelching what could be good ideas, uh, you know, and w really uh, preventing the group as a whole, mankind as a whole. And it doesn't even seem like it's good for the pack overall. I guess it's a question of do we want to be, you know, like what you see in some herd animals, or do we want to occasionally evolve into what would be more like a hive mind, um, you know, in that everybody, you know, in, a, in an ant colony, they don't weigh the political ramifications of whether or not when a worker ant comes back and says there's food at X place, they don't go through all the stupid social nuances involved with that. They go, oh, there's food over there. Let's go. You know, they don't say, well, I don't like Joe. He's he's a stupid ant. You know, right. let's go over to the, the Mark's food place. It's obviously much better just because we like Mark better. You know, th those are more distortions of uh, interaction, you know, that I think I hope that we as mankind can evolve past, and I, I just see it, you know, between that, you know, and I was saying, like, the power that ostracism can have over you, one of the major liberating moments of my life was when I removed myself from allowing any group of people, because you can see it when they're doing it to you. A group of people has decided they want to punish you for stepping outside of the social order. They'll start engaging in all kinds of attacks on you and all that to uh, to get you to shut up. And when you point it out to them, they're obviously they, they usually they'll just keep it up, but in some cases they're kind of confused. Like they look they look at you like, wait a minute, why did he say that? You're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to. Yeah. That's what we're doing. You know. Um, do you have any experience with any of that? Um. Well, I mean, with, with what specifically? Like what you were just saying. Right. Um. Kind of. I mean, I guess in a sense, but kind of in a broader sense, I would say with um. Uh, with just the emails that I kind of received based upon, I guess you could call a group being more or less um, the, the general consensus of some of my films. So uh, basically, um, I, I've gotten quite a few offers to uh, join with specific either political groups or um, like economic uh uh, revolutionary um, movements, things like that, and um, and all I do is I ask a bunch of questions. You know, I, I mean, because even, even things that immediately sound like a little like, uh, no, nah, I probably don't want to be a part of this. Um, I I always make sure I, I just I ask the right questions. So I ask a bunch of questions, and in many ways, um, unfortunately. What I've noticed is that when you ask the right questions to people and they start noticing the faults within the system that they're upholding, they get angry with that. Yeah. So they, they, they begin, like, to attack, you know, like, um, basically they began attacking me, in a sense, trying to pick apart little things in my movie that was, um, you know, that, that was off or uh, things that they didn't like about that. And... I, you know, I sent another email back, like, wait a minute, weren't you just asking to for me to, to join, you know? And, and all I was doing was asking a question. And, you know, they, they uh, for, for one, they were assuming that I was trying to imply certain things, 
you know, by asking the questions. And really all, you know, I said, well, I mean, the only thing I'm implying is the fact that I don't really understand yet the things that I'm asking the questions about. I'm implying the fact that I need an answer to my questions. And um, and so in a way, I guess that's, that's the closest I can come to saying that I've kind of experienced the same thing in, in a sense of kind of just questioning the uh, the agreed-upon order, not the truthful order, but the agreed-upon order of things. Um, and really, I, I find it very effective to just keep asking questions. And actually, what's kind of funny within, uh, you know, I get into a lot of, like, maritime admiralty law, but that's what they say to do in court, is uh, if you're defending yourself in court, keep asking questions. Because you can ask questions until, like, 2090. It doesn't matter. Like, you're not going to get convicted until the court case is over, and the court case won't be over until all the questions are answered. So if you keep asking questions, that's what you do. You know, so that's that's all I do is, I mean, if I don't quite understand something, I'm going to keep asking until I do understand it. And then I'll make it, yeah, I'll, I'll give my opinion on it. I constantly get emails asking my opinion on this person or that person or this group or that group. And um, I really, I just... Uh, most of the times, I say, well, I'm not 100% on it. Can you explain to me you know, what, what it's about? You know, and, like, that, again, gets aggravating to people. But I try to show them that, you know, um, I also try to encourage um, an honest observation of why are you asking me? Like, what are you trying to get out of this? Are you trying to solidify what you believe to be my stance in life? You know, so you can kind of figure me out, so you can get a, a grasp on what my philosophies are, so you can figure out whether you want to follow me or not. So the thing is, is I just I ask questions, and that pisses people off, and it's funny because what is it that's pissing people off about asking questions? It's not me. It's not what I'm doing. It's what it's what's happening within them. It was like when, again, bringing it full circle. It's what that shaman asked me when I was a kid, or uh, I shouldn't say when I was a kid because that was just few years ago, but saying, do you know what makes life grow? Do you know what that force is that allows for life to grow on this planet? And I was pissed off because I was like, what do you mean? That's so simple. Of course I know. And he's like, all right, answer it. I was like, well, you know, it was one of those things. I was, I was kind of insulted by the fact that he would ask me that question because to me, I had this own this stigma in my head that, you know, yeah, I, I understand everything. I also understand spiritual things. And you can ask me any question, and I'll understand it. And that seems so simple that I was almost insulted. Like, what do you mean do I understand what force makes things it grow on this planet? Of course I do. You know, so it was, it was insulting to me, and that was kind of me having to go through exactly uh, what we're talking about. I had to go through that phase where I was almost trying to, uh, in a sense, um, kind of uh, solidify my own viewpoints within like a rigid structure, and in, in a lot of ways, that's all that he uh, that shaman was doing was kind of breaking me down by asking questions. So I kind of find that to be a very useful tool. I don't want to call it a weapon or anything like that, but it's it's just a useful tool. Is just ask the right questions and don't stop asking questions until it's all figured out. Well, that's actually a, an excellent answer to it, and I, I definitely know what you mean about pissing people off for, for pointing out the truth of things. Um, I usually use the example of a, 
I mean, I, I hate to bring up warriors, but General Patton was a very talented general at this time, but he was not politically correct at all. Um, and he would say things that were very true about people like Montgomery, for example, who was not necessarily a very skilled general, but he was the English general, and they needed a hero over there for morale reasons since the British people were being bombed. And he would say stuff that was true all the time, and it was not what they were pushing as their agenda, so they'd come down on him about it. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's one of the reasons I like, uh, for example, George Carlin, that he only gets away with it because he frames it in comedy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like his Who Owns You speech is one of my favorites. Yeah. And, but he would only, you know, if he was just some guy standing out on a corner with a, with a sign, you know, they'd, they'd laugh at it. But because he figured out a way to get it through to people, you know, by framing it along with other entertainment, he got away with a lot more. Um, but, you know, overall, uh, I think that um, there are so many aspects of, you know, that was actually the, the other thing that came to mind that I'm going to bring up, was that I recognized that the Ron Paul movement was falling into groupthink when I was confronted with, you know, well, Ron Paul suggests that we all vote for, you know, Chuck Baldwin. Are you going to go against Ron Paul? Not, okay, you have a relevant point. Chuck Baldwin's platform is theocratic. You know, it advocates anti-gay rights and stuff like that. You know, it, it wasn't about that. It was about, are you going to go against Ron Paul? Yeah. And this is the supposed freedom movement. You know, and that was an example of, I, I recognize just how much it seeps in. Everybody wants to be led. You know, they wanted Ron Paul to be their leader, and that's not what Ron Paul wanted either, and I don't blame him for it. You know, it's, and when they, when they say that, it's so hard to get people to, to go along with it. Um, you know, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, like, I follow, quote-unquote, follow, and I say, quote-unquote, uh, Jock Fresco's work, but um, I have in the past disagreed with him, communicated with him that I disagreed with him, and changed his mind about things. Same thing with Peter. Mm -hmm. um, it is possible. You just have to demonstrate to them that you know what the hell you're talking about and, and you know, approach it from that direction. It's like well, the thing that came to my mind when you said that people reacted negatively to you, you when you didn't want to join their group um, reminds me of the same kind of crap that Peter puts up with all the time. Like imagine. And these people who were all hype on, ooh, resource-based economy, Venus Project, like that's moving. You know, now because the one of those groups did something, you know, one of those people did something they didn't like or did not agree with one of their ideas, now they're these people who literally make a life out of just making nasty YouTube videos and endlessly creating sock puppet accounts to get on our forums. And, you know, just, just because they're, one of their ideas was rejected, they can't shut up about it. This person that earlier, you know, was, was so important to them because of, you know, obviously, or they wouldn't be asking them for their help with something. Now right. all of a sudden because, oh, well, now he's rejected me. So now I need to shift the reality of the situation. This is where the people don't perceive reality correctly into being that this person is actually inferior to me. So it doesn't matter that they rejected me. Ha, huh, I'm glad they rejected me. Screw you and your film. I never liked it anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, what is that film? Uh, Happy Gilmore at the beginning where Adam Sandler is, uh, kind of through the intercom system, um, trying to, to beg his girlfriend to stay with him, and every time she says something mean, just like, you're going nowhere, Billy. And she's like, oh, yeah, I've seen those finger paintings you bring up from school, and they suck. You know, things like that. You know, that's pretty much what that mentality is, is, 
You know, you, you love someone as long as they give you what you want, and then as long as they're not giving you what you want, you hate them. And that's that's the animal mentality in, in, a, in a sense. Um, and I, I hate to make it sound uh, bad as, as if, like, animals do this in a, in a spiteful way, but honestly, like, if you stop feeding that cat that comes up to your door every day, it's not going to need you anymore. It's just going to go away and find somewhere else. And, you know, that's, that's pretty much what, uh, what it is with most people. They're, they're not really looking for fulfilled relationships anymore. They're looking to get something out of people. They're consumers. They're consumer-based vampiric almost. They're vampires in a sense to where they, they try to leech off of other people to satisfy something within themselves. So that's, that's the nature of a bully, is when a bully um, cannot satisfy a certain um, emotional, uh, some type of uh, aggregate or security issue within themselves, they take it out and they project that onto others to somewhat, in some way, alleviate some of that pressure within them, to act as um, a conduit to, you know, to project their anger into. And so that's, that's kind of the same thing as um, I get that, you know, quite a bit. Uh, again, like with that one situation, I was telling you, these people were asking me to, um, I wish I could remember the name because I had no problem calling them out. Um, uh, they, they were asking me to join this, uh, this group. And I didn't, I didn't insult it because it's not in my nature to insult anything. I was simply asking questions about it. And, um, and it just turned into a pissing match. Um, a one-sided pissing match, because all I was really doing was asking questions, and when it was getting heated, I kept saying, like, listen, this, I mean, this doesn't, we could be adults about this, I'm simply just asking a question, you know, just answer me straightforward, answer these questions straightforward, you don't need to throw, like you were saying at the beginning of the conversation, you don't need to throw in insults, you know, we're, we're adults, let's talk about this, let's get to the bottom of it, and it's just, that's not what they were looking for. They were looking for a certain thing from me, and I didn't give them what they were looking for, so that's why they reacted the way they did. Well, um, I agree with you for sure, 100% on that, and I, I've seen that, that that way that people they, they jealously guard their image, and that's one of the this is the, the one of the final cruxes that uh, Peter brought up in his film as well, is that we can't be wrong about anything, and therefore we can't learn. Yeah. You can't progress because you become attached to it, and because being wrong is associated with failure. And that is something that is actually uh, in, condoned, if not encouraged, in our modern education system. I'm now to the point where I'm... It's like I want to send my children to school, but I also remember very distinctly that one of the things that they did to me in school was I was a smart kid. I was smarter than the other kids in the class. Um, and I remember being made fun of for having a large vocabulary or using big words, as though that were a flaw that meant you were not a good person or not a valuable person. Um, I remember as the athletes in the school were, were held up on high and the kids who do good in the science fair, you know, are not really, you know, looked upon very well. Mm-hmm. And, and these things all seem kind of backwards to me. Uh, and fortunately enough, I had a mother who helped to counter any of that having any serious indoctrinating effects on me. 
But I, I really worry about it because, like, my sister, for example, by the time she was around, she, my mother was at the stage where she was a bit more tired. You know how they, they say the youngest, you know, gets away with a lot more. Yeah. She was a total product of her environment when we lived in the ghetto, just right down to the, the music, the clothing tastes. And, and I don't have a problem with people having that if it's an expression of freedom. Like, for example, she, for example, stated to me that she would never date a white guy. And the only reason that bothered me was because, you know, if somebody's going to race mix and it is an expression of freedom, I don't care. It wasn't like that. She was in a position where if she were to date a white person, it would then therefore look badly on her socially. It was actually, um, there was social stratification involved with, you know, dating somebody of either the Hispanic or black race in the bad neighborhood that I lived in. And so therefore, you know, out of claiming that she was doing so to be rebellious, the other funny thing is those groups of rebellious people that all dress exactly the same when they're trying to be different. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, it was kind of summed up with the Marilyn Manson craze where everybody wanted to be an individual and they, they wanted to do their own thing, so they all dressed up exactly like Marilyn Manson. Oh, man. <laughs> I try to do my best to shut up about stuff like that because as a musician, I have some really extreme opinions. But yeah. uh, but I know what you mean. I, uh, Marilyn Manson drives me crazy. I, I can't believe that guy got as much attention as he did. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't even really... Uh, it's not even really even about him. It's it's uh, it's, it's just kind of funny. Uh, some of the... I, I think it was... I'm, I, I mean, don't judge me for this, but it was on a Jerry Springer episode, and I have no idea why I was actually watching that, but there were... Uh, um, there were individuals that would paint themselves up and they would go to school exactly like Marilyn Manson. And when they were asked on the Jerry Springer show why they were doing that, why they would dress that way, why they would paint up their, their pretty face, they'd say it's because, you know, like Marilyn Manson taught us that we could be different than anybody and be our own individuals. And I'm not afraid to be, you know, an individual. So, I'm, you know, I dress up like this. And they even, you know, even on that show, they kind of like... Uh, ate through the bullshit and they, they understood they were just like do you understand that you're, you're talking about being an individual and your method of showing you're an individual is conforming to a formula that people are doing all over the world now because of Marilyn Manson and it's it's some of those things like again these kids didn't want to hear it why because they had their own personal belief, they were comfortable with that, and when people were asking them the questions, like, do you realize that you're doing the exact opposite of what you say you're doing? They didn't like that. So. Yep. No, I agree. And that's, that's another, I mean, I, we could go on for hours about that stuff, but I've covered the century of self with my listeners, just, you know, how fashion and, and all that is just, it's a big sham, and it's a way to control you. And that's another thing that I had to free myself from, you know, was any notion whatsoever. I mean, I was never really into it anyway, but, you know, I remember the brief period of time that I decided to deal with the way people were picking on me based on, you know, what I was wearing. You know, and, and you really get pigeonholed into thinking, you know, also just about what makes you a successful individual is entirely based upon your monetary, you know, gain um, and what you can achieve in that. Now, um, I wanted to ask the, the final question of the evening, I promise. Um, okay. <laughs> This has to do with, I mean, I know that you didn't get a chance to get fully exposed to it, but uh, what are your feelings on you know, the Zeitgeist movement and the Venus Project, at least from what you've seen so far? Uh, from from what I know so far, um, again, I, I 
I can't really remember if this was um, part of the beginning of our interview or actually uh, us talking a little bit beforehand, but um, as far as um, what Peter and Jacques and uh, Roxanne are doing, um, whether you know collectively or independently, I absolutely appreciate them as individuals and and everything they're doing. Um, uh, specifically, say like with uh, Peter being you know being a fellow uh, filmmaker. Um, I personally, I, I, I love and appreciate anybody who is willing to stick their neck out and put so much of their own time into the cause of improving the quality of, li- of, of life in general. Um, that's what I try to do. And I, um, I go more by the, what I see as the intentions and the true, um, moral character or the ethical character of people. Uh, rather than just their their specific um, beliefs based upon details and conditioning and this that and the other, so um, I absolutely do appreciate everything that they're doing um, through the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project. And uh, I, I guess I somewhat uh, I understand the the Venus Project. Um, I'm not too sure and I guess this is probably one of the um the, the common misconceptions that there are they're, they're not the exact same thing. Um they're they're kind of just uh I guess helping one another. Is that what it is? The Zeitgeist movement calls itself the activist arm of the Venus Project. Okay. But not everything that is involved with Zeitgeist is um endorsed by the Venus Project. For example, Jack Fresco does not endorse the first film. Right. is not interested in conspiracy theories. I mean, he it's not that he doesn't think that the elite uh, do bad things. He absolutely knows that. He's been around for 94 years, and he watched it throughout the Great Depression and everything yeah. else. He just tends to think that uh, we should be focused more on fixing it rather than you know endlessly talking about what may or may not have happened. Right. Uh, because, you know, as I said to you when we are off the area, whatever it is that is a problem, we can fix it through what we suggest is resource-based economy. We can focus endlessly on the symptoms, but that's like a doctor talking to you for three hours about the fact that your nose is running because you have a cold. Let's yeah. just get to what we're going to do about the cold. Um, so, I mean, but yeah, I could continue. Um, okay, so I I don't really know what I would say about the Zeitgeist Project then. Uh, I'm sorry, the Zeitgeist Movement, um, specifically because I, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit more aware of, of um, the, the tenets and the principles of the of the Venus Project. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure what the activist arm of the the Venus Project really entails. Um, like, well, we have meetings, we spread awareness, we tell people about the Venus Project and its concepts, we give presentations. It's essentially, you know, a grassroots meetup kind of effort. Okay, like just, to, just to spread the information then. Right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's uh, that's great. Obviously, that's um, pretty much exactly what I'm doing with the Hangman Project but um, a, a little bit more broad and vague with the Hangman Project because it, it bleeds into a, a lot of different scenarios and subjects. Um, as far as uh, the Venus Project, as, as far as I've actually looked into it, um, the, the ideas and the principles that I find very appealing about it are the, the sustainability and the, um, the, the lower impact on the environment. So, meaning the um, kind of getting away from the amount of waste that's polluting our planet and um, and killing our oceans and 
and I'm not really sure if, if it's touched upon deforestation. That's another huge issue that, you know, everybody... We want to get out of using wood. Okay, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's no reason to even use wood. It's not even it's not even a good building material. Yeah, we right. talk a lot about that, actually. And, and, I mean, I, I was specifically down in the Amazon where logging was taking place, and it's, uh, it's incredible the amount that's actually being destroyed and depleted and wiped off the face of the planet down there. Um, seeing it firsthand, and I only saw it for a couple weeks. So, um, so that's, that's great to hear. Um, as far as, uh, as far as technology, uh, is concerned, I'm not really a hundred percent on the, I, I don't understand a hundred percent the idea of how technology would be used for, I guess, would you call it like a justice system or judicial system? Uh, the biggest aspect of that is actually rather than, well, first of all, you try to prevent crime in the first mm-hmm. place through the um, correct use of the environment. When, when a criminal act takes place, you study the person in question, you find out what caused the criminal act, and then you adjust the environment accordingly to prevent that critical act or criminal act. If somebody, I mean criminal, we say criminal, but right. if, for example, the concept of a prison and of its current incarnation goes away entirely, you, you treat people who have certain aberrant behaviors as somebody who just, you need to help. Um, how do we fix this person? You, you, pick, you, you treat them more like a patient than, you know, somebody that you expect to lock in a cell with other criminally active people and then expect them to somehow get better. Um, I mean, well, I mean, that's what we say on the surface. It's even worse than that. Then we it, understand the, the prison industrial complex and all the money that's made in the prison system. All right. First. But it's, it's a matter of rather than focusing so much on law, um, you focus on what creates aberrant behavior and then just create an environment that is in such a fashion that we'll get rid of it. We feel most of it is actually all pretty much geared around the monetary system, the exchange of money, uh, the neuroses through the stress of the situation that is caused by it. I mean, uh, that's basically what I would say uh, is the best answer to that question is that okay. it's not to say that people could not be round enough, you know, somebody's randomly shooting somebody or something. Yeah, we'll, we'll deal with it. But we're not going to then put this guy in prison for 60 years and not spend a lot of time trying to figure out why did he shoot these people? Right. What did we do to prevent more people like this one existing? Um, yeah. You know, the example that Jacques gives was there was another serial killer uh, around the time that he was younger, and uh, he would he would find children and he would mutilate their genitals. And of course, you know when they when they caught the guy, they wanted to burn him at the stake. And he's like, you know, he knew of a psychiatrist at the time. He's like, no, let me study him. I want to know what made him so that we can prevent this. And then they found out that the guy's mom was like, you know, a religious fanatic and had caught him masturbating at one point and told him that if he did that, he was going to burn in hell and all that other jazz. So she woke up in the middle of the night and ran to his room because he was screaming. He had driven pins into his own genitals mm-hmm. because he didn't want to go to hell. Um, and so then when he went out murdering these kids, he had got it into his head that if he, you know, if he mutilated their genitalia, then they wouldn't go to hell. Um, and that's an example of him. Yeah, it's completely irrational. But you've got to figure out what, what in his environment created that behavior rather right. than criticizing what we're going to do to him after the fact. Right. And yeah, and I, I definitely, um, you know, I, I don't want to harp on just like one little issue or anything like that, you know, because I, I understand, like, the big, the bigger goal, obviously, is the Venus Project. So I guess more or less what I was getting at with that was, um, I can remember, actually, what I was thinking 
because you, you mentioned, uh, you know, understanding what a, a criminal truly is instead of just being like a broken piece of technology and you throw them away into a prison system, actually understanding them as an individual, as a patient. Um, Trying to rehabilitate them. Well, absolutely. Yeah, de- you know, definitely. And, and being aware of the dangers that they may present. But then, you know, so where my work would really actually come into this is um, at, at least understanding those, um, those, those subtle defects, those subtle levels, um, because obviously right now uh, psychology and the field of psychology is still a, a very brand new science, even if you want to call it a science. Um, so, some people don't even consider it a science. Um, but really understanding those aspects of what the, um, I don't want to call them malcontents or misfits of society would be that kind of would act as a bad seed within a society. Right. Um, um, but go ahead and finish your sentence because it's going to cut us off here in like 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, um, basically, I guess we could, um, it, it'd probably be better if we just dedicated maybe another show to kind of getting into that then. Sure. Instead of me trying to just blurt it out in 30 minutes. But, um, Absolutely. As, yeah, as a whole, uh, you know, I'm all for anything that really is for the, you know, the, you know, the, the prosperity of life. So I, I appreciate what everybody's doing in that respect. Well, thanks a lot for being on. Um, I'll, once again, I'll chat with you a little bit when we get off the air. And thank you all for tuning in to V Radio, this unexpected three-hour edition. <laughs> I will talk to you guys later, and thanks for tuning in. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're 